VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, April the 5th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Paddy Daly, and David Williams. He's back in the producer's chair this morning. We are, of course, looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. All right, uh, Team Juice remain undefeated in the uh, World Men's Curling Championships in Las Vegas, baby. Beat Italy last night, 10-4. They got Germany today, so the clean sheet continues for the lads. Go get them. All right, a couple interesting todays in history. So it was 300 years ago today that a Dutch explorer named Jacob Roggeveen uh, first discovered, well, the first European to discover Easter Island. Now, Easter Island is a really curious thing, uh, a curious place in the first place. So it was colonized by Polynesians around maybe 800 or 1200 AD. There's some arguments about it. But the Europeans hadn't visited until 1720, 1722. So if you can picture in your mind's eye what's on Easter Island, all of these Polynesian, uh, what do they call them? Extant monumental statues, some 1,000 of them, built by the early Rapu Nui people. In 1995, UNESCO named Easter Island one of the World Heritage Sites, and much of the island is protected with the Rapu Nui National Park. Now, this is a strange little place anyway. It's in the southeastern Pacific Ocean. Uh, it's a special territory now of Chile. But here's some interesting details. It's one of the most remote inhabited islands in the world. The nearest inhabited land, about 50 residents in 2013, is Pitcairn Island. That's over 2,000 kilometers away. The nearest town with a population over 500 is Rikatia on the island of Mangavra, which is almost 2,600 kilometers away. So remote, to say the very least, first discovered by the Europeans today in history, 1722. And we've been talking about mining. And I bet you most of you can remember this. It was also today in uh, 2010 where there was 115 Chinese coal miners were freed. The world was watching with bated breath. There was eight days of rescue efforts in the flooded mine. They had already killed 38 people, but 115 Chinese coal miners freed today. Okay. Just a little promotion for what's coming up a little later in the program. The world watched with horror, certainly Canadians, on the 6th of April of 2018 when the bus that was carrying the coaches and staff and the players of the Humboldt Broncos was in a collision with a transport truck. 29 passengers, 16 died, 13, they lived on, but they'll have the emotional scars for the rest of their life. One of the players who succumbed to his injuries the next day is defenseman Logan Boulay. So his parents, Bernie and Toby Boulay, are going to come on this program a little later this morning to talk about Green Shirt Day, which happens on the 7th of April, to commemorate his death and celebrate his life. So Boulay had told his parents he wanted to be an organ donor. He was inspired by his coach, Rick Suggett, who had done the exact same thing. He donated his organs when he died in June of 2017. What happened was a rush of some 150,000 Canadians who are now willing to be an organ or tissue donor, called the Logan Boulay Effect. And so Green Shirt Day is to talk about organ donor awareness and registration uh, programs and campaigns right across the country. So Logan Boulay's parents will join us a little later in the program. Okay. So we just mentioned the Chinese miners that had been saved, and we talk about a lot of mining opportunities that is happening up in Labrador, but there's also lots of mining opportunities here on the island. One such is Marathon Gold's Valentine Lakes, uh, which will become the largest gold mine in Atlantic Canada. Communities nearby are, of course, bracing for what they hope will be the economic boon, including towns like Millertown. Only about 80 people live in Millertown, only about 10 school-aged children. 
But with the lifespan of the mine looking to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 17 years when you include construction and operations and cleanup, there will be opportunities for people to move to Millertown or other surrounding communities. So it's not only Labrador where we're seeing a lot of mining activity. Marathon Gold and Valentine Lake, the largest gold deposit in Atlantic Canada. Well, that's been discovered anyway. All right, let's go back to Labrador. All right. So we are now getting painfully familiar with the interruption formula used by the Public Utilities Board to adjust the price of fuels. Yesterday, they did it with uh, diesel and stove oils. Diesel up over 30 cents a litre in only two regions of Labrador. The change applies in Western Labrador and Churchill Falls. Now the price for a litre of diesel has cleared $3. You know, the question about where does it end is an excellent question. But what's going to be even more important is we've got to not allow the Public Utilities Board to remain basically nameless and faceless. They owe us some explanation and justification for these numbers. You know, we just can't get news releases that give us the bare bones numbers. We really do need them because we can't get much in the way of explanations coming from our politicians. We need the PUB to do interviews with the media to talk about why the process and the results of all these adjustments. It's just not good enough. We're just paying through the nose. So whether or not they would help us understand the correlation between the price of barrel of oil and the price of gasoline or diesel or home, home heating oils or stove oils, whatever, propane. But because the numbers are just so whopping, they really do have to come out of their shell and offer us media interviews so they can justify the moves that they're making. It is impacting everything we touch in this province, but we can't get any explanation versus just a news release that gives us just the numbers. So might be an idea for the PUB, maybe through direction coming from the provincial government, to give us these interviews, give us these explanations, because we need them. All right, yesterday the House of Assembly reopened for the... The rest of the spring session after a two-week break, of course, there is a laundry list of issues that the province is grappling with. And if you want to grapple with any issue under the sun this morning, please do it when you call the program. So whether it be some of what they call a spirited exchange on the Baden or project, okay, the health care issues and up and down the line, COVID, whatever you want to talk about. But also, we learned yesterday that given the fact that there was a, amendments made to two pieces of legislation, the Memorial University Act and the Auditor General Act, now Denise Hanrahan and her team are going to be able to go in and review the spending at Memorial University. Okay. So we don't know when it's going to start, how long it's going to take, and exactly what will be examined, but Ms. Hanrahan says it will be a full and comprehensive review of the most heavily subsidized university in Canada. And, of course, taxpayers' dollars are a big, large part of operating at Memorial University. These are numbers from Stats Canada. 76.2% of the university's general operating revenue in 2019-2020 came from government grants. The Canadian average, 44.8%. So all the while, Mon is looking for more autonomy, because at this moment in time, they had to go down the road of even asking provincial government uh, permission to how they would invest donations or even federal monies that came flowing towards the university. So with the requ request for more autonomy, we need to have a look under the hood or behind the covers, whatever they say. President Vianne Timmons says it's welcomed. The scrutiny, they have an audit every year, and it's been a clean audit every year that, since she's been there, and they balance their budget. Okay, so let's have a look. It is curious, though, when the minister responsible, Minister Osborne, talks about in the air of transparency. And at the exact same time, now we know the government does indeed have the $5 million U.S. Rothschild & Company report in hand. But transparency, that's only good for Memorial University not for the government. So Minister Cody says that this will not be publicly released because it contains commercial sensitivities. 
even the parts of the report that don't contain commercial uh, sensitivities will also not be released. So it's in hand, currently in the drawer as they prepare to deliver the budget on Thursday, but the public will be kept in the dark. How can this possibly be? I've got some, I guess, staunch liberal supporters telling me via email that, you know, the government would be foolish to release details which would allow buyers to get these assets at fire sale prices. What? You don't have to release the things that will indeed fuel the low bids. And remember, the government doesn't have to sell off the assets or privatize assets if it doesn't come close to what the assessed value will be. So even if you just let us know what the recommendations are, you know, the value of Marble Mountain is one thing. The value of the assets that we hold with the oil and gas interest is another thing. But we just can't be told that, no, can't see it, commercial sensitivities. That's generally for private enterprise to protect their commercial sensitivities, not for taxpayer-funded operations and a tax fu- taxpayer-funded report that, you know, I think there's a question as to how necessary it was. People will tell me that they have the expertise to assess, assess such, uh, such assets, the valuation. Okay. But this can't be good enough. If we're not going to see any of the details, how can we even expect there to be a debate on the floor of the House of Assembly? If members of the opposition and independent members don't have any idea what the report entails, then how can we even expect them to embrace some sort of debate on each asset on a case-by-case basis? You just don't have to release stuff that's going to hoop us. Yes, you want to protect the taxpayer as you try to evaluate whether or not we're going to privatize or sell off some of these assets, but to be kept fully in the dark is simply just not good enough. And it doesn't make any sense. You can indeed tell us some of what the report entails, including, and importantly, what the recommendations are for for each of the assets. You don't have to give up the game and and shoot yourself in the foot by releasing things that may indeed jeopardize the bidding process, but the commercially sensitive parts will be held close to the vest, and so will the remaining parts of the report. I don't know why we're even splitting that here. So we're going to demand transparency for the Nauter General's comprehensive review of Memorial University, but we're not going to be transparent on some of the big issues that the government is grappling with inside the covers of this Rothschild report, which came on the heels of the Green report. So I don't know, man. I don't think that's going to pass the public political smell test. And I guess that'll be their that'll be their problem. But for the rest of us, our problem is just not knowing. Once again, there's going to be examples that the opposition parties will point to where the lack of transparency is ruled a day, or there'll be some of the details surrounding the cyber attack and and others. But this Rothschild report, I'm not so sure they're on the right track with just keeping that to themselves. Again. How can we possibly see that the government is living up to their obligations? How can we ever know that whether or not the assessed value was achieved through the bidding process? Without the details, how can we know that other people who are elected members serving, serving different districts in the province, not represented by a liberal, are in the know, able to ask questions, able to probe, ensure that we're on the right track? Because I think the smart money's on the fact that Rothschild would probably have recommended a privatization or a sell-off of all of the assets being considered. Sort of in their track record. And if the governor wants to prove us wrong, well, you can only do that in one way. Let us have a look at the report. And yes, protect what is absolutely necessary. And I'd rather have Michael Harvey, the province's privacy commissioner, deem what is absolutely necessary to protect from the bidding public and the taxpaying public. But anyway, you want to chime in on the Rothschild report? And what we don't know what's in it, anyway, we can do that too. And we can talk about whatever you like, as you know, here on this program. A couple of quick notes in the, the world of COVID. 
Again, the numbers are just for information. So reporting some 674 new cases since Friday, two more people have died. That brings the total since the beginning of the pandemic to 118. There's 43 people in the hospital too, and you know, Dr. Fitzgerald told us that between 40 and 60 is what we can handle. So we are in that zone now, so it'd be probably nice to hear. So of the 43, nine are in critical care. Well, what becomes curious is, you know, Minister Haggie says that the modeling shows that we are at or near peak of COVID and the Omicron and the new subvariant that's in the community. My question would be the modeling based on what? Because it's an honor system, a self-reporting system for the students, for instance, and the rapid antigen test. The protocols have been changed a long way. That means that the PCR test results and the numbers associated with it, they are largely inaccurate. So the modeling is based on what? You know, in the past, the modeling hasn't been that accurate anyway. It's an imperfect science, even though Dr. Proton Raman seems like one of the brightest men I've ever heard speak. But what are we basing this particular uh, round of modeling on? And what does it mean if we keep upticking here in the hospitalization numbers? Just asking and just sharing information that was released by public health. So if you want to take it on from any angle, we can do exactly that. People are also wondering about the inability to get Paxlovid. It's Pfizer's antiviral drug. It's got some pretty strict protocols surrounding who will indeed be eligible. Some of the complications are for people who aren't living in and around St. John's, is they have to make their way to St. John's to see an infectious disease specialist. So that's complicated for some. And the other criteria that is being considered, uh, da, 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 da. Pills will be administered to those who are COVID-19 positive within five days of symptoms, people who are moderately or severely immunocompromised, people over 80 who are not fully vaccinated, people over 60 who live in rural or remote communities and may not be fully vaccinated, residents of long-term care facilities, and members of indigenous groups. We've had 800 courses delivered to the province. Only 148 people have taken them. So they've all been able to stave off hospitalizations because of this drug or in part because of this drug, but still so many people are unable to get their hands on it. It does have a poor interaction with some cholesterol pills and blood pressure medication, but if you want to talk about Paxlovid and what it means for dealing with symptoms and to try to protect you, of course there's always going to be a risk-benefit analysis, and that would be done by the infectious disease specialist, but you have to make your way all the way to town for that. Okay, so we know the provincial budget is coming on Thursday the 7th, federal budget the same day. So this will be Finance Minister Christian Freeland's second budget that she'll deliver in the House of Commons. For her first budget, you remember the remarks, there was, she would say, there was a risk of doing too little to help in the post-pandemic economic recovery. This time around, many people are saying there's a risk of doing too much. Now, we don't know exactly what's going to be in the budget. There's going to be some attention to defense spending, and we know that based on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and NATO allies now really having to up their game with spending at least 2% of GDP on defense, there's going to be some discussion around housing affordability, climate change initiatives, of course. Some additional supports, we're told, for seniors is coming. There's probably going to be a framework launch regarding the supply confidence deal that struck with the NDP, so that would be universal dental care and drug care. So if you want to talk about what we can potentially see in the federal budget, it's also a conversation we're interested in here. This is a quote coming from the minister. The reality is that Canada is resilient and our economy is recovering well from the COVID-19 recession. Our GDP grew 6.5% in the fourth quarter, making us the second strongest economy in the G7. We have recovered 112% of the jobs lost because of the pandemic, compared to only 90% in the United States. But of course, the strength of the economy is really based on where you are. 
there's a lot of portions and parts of Canada where we don't feel and see that particular growth. And what we absolutely need to see here is not just pandemic supports, if they do indeed continue in some form for individuals and businesses, but we... It would be nice to talk about, I know there's a difference between monetary and fiscal policy, but inflation at a 30-year high, there's got to be some attention to it in the budget. It's not all the Bank of Canada's role. Then there's got to be, hopefully, a real plan, a real roadmap for sustained growth. You know, not just dealing with the knee-jerk reaction to today, but a look down the road in growth would be pretty important, if you ask me. What do you think? How are we doing on the telephone there, David? All right, we're on Twitter, we're VSM Open Line, follow us there. Oh, Twitter, Elon Musk bought 9.2% of Twitter. He's the largest shareholder in this social media platform. Make of it what you will. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com, but let's get a tune going for you. It was today in 1975. A former number one hit is now at number five on the top ten chart. It's Patti LaBelle with Lady Marmalade. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Let's begin on line number four. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Yes, I was wondering about the carbon tax and what effect it had on the gasoline here in Newfoundland. Okay. Or do you just want me to describe it as I understand it? Yes, Okay. So inside the taxation on a a liter of unleaded gasoline, right now the carbon tax is 8.8 cents. Uh, On April 1st, there was a federal increase of 2 cents that has to be applied, and I think that will happen on Thursday when the province brings down its budget. So there will indeed be just about 11 cents uh, carbon tax on fuel. Oh, okay. That's fine, Patty. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, so... It was indeed April 1st where the additional two cents was put on, but I think there's an association with the budget before it actually gets applied here in this province. Let's go to line number two. Lindy, you're on the air. Morning, Barry. Morning to you. I'm just wondering, GST, HST just came out. Okay. It was supposed to be a 10% increase according to government, but what they were saying is not on there. 10% increase the GST returns? Yes, as opposed to 10% increase in folks on old age security? Uh, there was no increase there. Yeah, I don't really even know about... Uh, there was supposed to be a GST, HST, 10% increase. Higher than on the radio. Okay. Well, it never came out on this check. So I don't think it applied to everyone in the first place. So it was only low. It was it was only low income earners, wasn't it? Yes. Okay. But why didn't it come out on this check? Why is it not coming out now until July? I have no earthly idea. I don't know the answer to that one, Lindsay. To be honest. No, sir. As far as I'm concerned, I'm certain that not like this government. Anyway, Patty. Well, wasn't that, that was last year, though, wasn't it? No, sir. That wasn't last year. There was nothing last year. There was nothing on GSD, HSD. There hasn't been an increase for years. In my book, not that I can remember. Yeah, and I don't know, I can't remember the eligibility for this, so I'm pretty sure it was like most of these programs, it was for low-income earners. Yes, over 75 years old. That's all age security, not GST. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. All right? Yeah. Anything else? No, that's it. Okay, Lindy, take it easy. Yep, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number one. Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Caught me off guard there. No worries. Welcome (laughs) to the show. (laughs) 
How are you this morning? Doing okay, I thanks. Know, people always got rain. I think we got a load of snow overnight. Yeah, well, when I got up to get a drink of water in the middle of the night, there was snow on the hood of, the, of my vehicle. Then when I got up this morning to go to work, it was cleared off, so it rained. But then when I got to work, it started to snow again, and it's still snowing. <laughs> well, I went to bed last night. It was, was raining. Got up this morning, it was snowing. And they got, like, drifts four and five feet high out on the port port Peninsula. Just wicked. Yeah, I've seen some right. pictures. God. Anyway, can't change that. Here's something I hope we can change this morning. An awful, first of all, surprising. I guess it don't surprise me that it happened, but it is surprising that it can happen. That a federal minister, without consultation with, there's like 10,000 fishers in Atlantic Canada and Quebec, with no consultation with the provincial premiers, because this did come as a surprise to Minister Derek Bragg, as he said, shuts down two bait fisheries that support, like in this province, hundreds of million dollars of revenue that goes towards our bottom line and goes to provide jobs, sustenance for families, for all the fishers and their workers. So what you're talking about is uh, Minister Joyce Murray's decision to have a moratorium on herring and mackerel. Yes, I should have said that right up front. I guess I, I alluded to it like everybody understood what I was talking about. Sorry, thank you. No problem. Uh, it's absolutely flabbergasting that something that means so much to us as a province, not only us, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick, coastal Quebec, something that means so much to us could just carte blanche be changed with stroke of a pen by the same minister that wants to grow plants in the ocean and obviously leave more fish in the ocean. And that's starting with the main fish that we should be using for other fisheries. Now, there's no mention of capelin, and capelin hasn't really been fished too much, I don't think, over the past few years. Oh, be. oh, absolutely it has. The big issue with herring and mackerel, I mean, the, and the cod do indeed eat both of those species. The Atlantic tuna will also eat herring and mackerel. Yep. But the fact that it's such a widely used bait has some pretty distinct concerns associated with it. So it'll be the access and supply of bait. It'll also be the price. So this, has a, this makes it a lot more complicated for the harvesters who are going out to bait their pots when they would have used herring and mackerel. I don't know what the solutions are or what even the alternatives are, to be honest. Well, to me, one of the alternatives, first of all, is finding a minister of fisheries that understands the fishery, its economic and social impact, should you just automatically screw it the way that she just did. And the other thing that would probably help is if she wanted to mirror conservation, which is what she's saying, and no doubt, maybe there's some merit to give in some relief to these species to be able to, you know, to get get them back to a stronger position. One of the things they've never faced, because they're cowards, cowards, is to start up a, a seal call that would promote not only uh, basically a situation where seals themselves would benefit from it, but every other species in the ocean, every time they cut open a seal gut and you see all the baby crab and you see all the young herring and mackerel and everything else that's in them, there's just too many of them. We know it. They, you've heard science reporting that there's no true link to predation on cod by seal. I don't know. Whoever come up with that obviously never spent a day on the water or around the mouths of rivers where they gorge on salmon and everything else. 
they're obviously, because of, I guess, constraints in the U.K. and all of the U.K.'s bunny hugger, oh, you can't do that. Uh, no, no, it's no. It's not feasible. I don't know if the UK, that's the reason. No, it's not because the U.K. actually uh, engages in the call. Well, and they should. And they're looking at doing the same thing now in Western Canada over in around B.C. What we need now is quickly, if this minister could shut down these two vital, vital fisheries that our fisher people so need, and not just the fisher persons, the harvesters, anybody who works in a fish plant, anybody that benefits from these, these industries, if she can carte blanche shut this down with no consultation whatsoever, what kind of power does this lady who obviously... The scary part is she doesn't understand the economic impact to us or she doesn't care. It's curious because when she made the comment about growing more vegetation in the ocean, which, okay, that makes sense to me, fine, but it doesn't have to include leaving more and more cod, for instance, in the water. But then there was a meeting between uh, uh, Provincial Fisheries Minister Derek Bragg and I believe the Premier was involved. They both came away optimistic with her understanding of the industry. And now I guess that didn't go very far because the base understanding seems to be absent in this particular one. I don't know whether or not it's pruned or based in science to have a moratorium on the herring and the mackerel. Consultation, always a good idea. But insofar as the seal call okay so we don't even take the annual quota out of the water at this point so even if even a call for a call sake is a pretty political hot potato so if we're not even going to take the quota what leads anyone to believe that we're going to have fish harvesters with their own money fund a call with nowhere to sell the product same thing they do when they use a bait fish. They're going to use it for their own purpose. And I'm not saying they should even have to buy it. Why not give harvesters the right to go out, hunt the seals, get as much as they need for their bait purpose, and move on with their lives? And who cares what somebody else thinks about this? This is a necessary thing that has to be done, has been talked about for years, tossed around, and, oh, no, we can't do that, we can't do that. People, propagandists like... Pamela Anderson and Paul McCartney coming down, crawling around on the ice and blah, blah, blah. Look at the cute little white seal. We haven't been killing them for years. That's not the purpose of a call. Yeah, but does it... Sometimes I think we might oversimplify this a little bit, and this is why I say that. When the World Trade Organization banned the importation of seal product, that has some pretty weighty uh, implications. So just to say that, you know, we can kill as many, uh, and I don't even know what a call means in some people's minds, if it's a million or two million or three million, I don't know. But if it has actual trade and international relations implications, doesn't that complicate the conversation just a little bit? You know, we can do what we think is best for harvesters in this province. We can do what we think is better for the cod stock recovery. But there's also bigger questions on the other end, isn't there? Yeah, here's one that I got. What about if they decide to choose another furry animal that they want to protect? Let's say a cow breeds there, it's on the planet. What makes that any different than a seal? The size the and the is there's nobody running around in Learjets promoting don't kill the cow, I guess. Well, because seals are easy pickings, because it doesn't have a big representative industry that's well-financed. That's why they don't go after the cattle industry. So, okay, let's toss morality off the plate. That's not part of the issue whatsoever. But morality so was actually... Who's ever doing a better Dave, job at keeping it stopped, I think. Dave, morality was called by the World Trade Organization as to how they came up with this decision. And the reason that some of these animal protection groups don't go after industries like uh, 
the beef industry is because the beef industry is huge and can financially push back, whereas nobody represents the seals, so they're easy pickings. They can use some of the old video from years ago when it wasn't quite as regulated as it is now, and the little white coats and the red blood and the white ice, but there's no one representing that industry. The cattle industry, the beef industry, they are absolutely massive. No one's going to take that down, take that on. No, I guess it kind of shows the hypocrisy of society and how we deal with problems, even some of them that are most important and should be. Uh, There's a show called Swamp People, where alligators bite down on a hook and they're stuck on a hook yanking and trapped for however long till some redneck fellow comes along and puts a bullet in his skull and hauls it in the boat. So another marine air breathing animal that i'm pretty sure if you look at it has every god's right that every other animal should and every natural right that they should the thing is what we've done is we've allowed uh an entire society to evolve that uh, a few of the right videos and few things from greenpeace tagged to it and all of a sudden is a bad thing it's no different to call them seals to take some strain off of the species that could desperately need it and probably not the entire deal either. I mean, this is a shared resource that we have, especially macro, with the U.S. There's no talk down there of stopping fishing or lowering quotas or anything like that that I've seen, and I've looked for it. Okay. But we're going to do it here in Canada. We're going to suffer. People understand the history. You know, and the hypocrisy on the other side is that they would buy garbage, fatten up a duck or a goose for foie gras. They'll also go to a bullfight in Spain yeah. and share it on, but they will yeah. ban the importation of seal product based on morality. Yeah. Good one. Uh, Dave, I'm off to the break. Appreciate the time. Thank you very much. And oh. Fishers, harvesters out there, look, if you got to and you got to look after your family, and I say do, do and, and Quebec, by the way, because I'll call back another day, and I think it's not a bad idea for us to join Quebec in their efforts too, and probably even amalgamate fully. <laughs> the boogeyman that is Quebec, good luck with that one. I appreciate the time, Dave. <laughs> Off I go. Thank you. All right, bye. bye-bye. Uh, very quickly, based on Lindy's call. So the April payment is the final quarterly payment of the 2020 tax year. So any increase would not take place on the April payment. The July payment would be the first quarter of the 2021 tax year. I hope that helps, says Amanda. It sure does. Thank you very much. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Well, it was back on the 15th of March, I'm pretty sure, that the nine members who work at the Lily as part of Choices for Youth, they took to the picket lines as a 14-unit congregate living supporting housing center for young vulnerable youth. My understanding is the talks have broken off between NAPE, who is now representing these nine employees and the leadership group of Choice of Youth. Join us on line number four is the president of NAEP, Jerry Earl. Good morning, Jerry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, to you and your listeners. How are you today? I'm doing okay. How about you? Not too bad. I just stepped away from the picket line here in uh, beautiful downtown St. John's uh, where these nine workers still courageously stand at the picket line. And uh, once I finish this call, I'll go back and join them. Uh, again, I think I said to you when the strike commenced, the strike that number one should have never happened and absolutely should not be into its third week as of today. It's a, a situation that in all my years, I just don't understand why these workers still need to be on the side of the street rather than inside the lily uh, caring for those youths. Where are we? 
Patty, that's a good question. I think I heard a caller and you made a, a comment yesterday on the show. I'll try to listen to your show as much as I can. Uh, where The OCM has other media outlets have reached out to management and they're refusing to comment. Uh, twice during this strike, uh, NAPE has reached out to a conciliation officer. Our negotiating team uh, asked to go back to the bargaining table because I've heard the employer say they want to seek a deal. Well, you got to seek a deal by going to the bargaining table. On both occasions, we reached out to the solution officer. They were able to do that, uh, get the parties back to the, the bargaining table. But unfortunately, last Thursday night, in a, another attempt uh, by the bargaining committee, uh, again, the, the employer was not prepared to resolve the outstanding issues. And unfortunately, the strike has commenced, uh, or continued, I should say. Uh, and that's most unfortunate. Uh, again, I wish to see Mr. Pollard would contact me, or I uh, wish I knew how to contact him because he keeps... Uh, avoiding he is not engaged in any way shape or form because uh, this can be resolved with a willingness by the employer because uh, these members do want to go back uh, we're actually have youth coming from the super eight hotel where they've been hours now by uh choices of youth uh coming to the picket line to talk to these workers to seek assistance uh these workers are heartbroken over the situation uh and they just want to be get back to work uh, once they're going to reach a fair, reasonable collective agreement. So what are the issues that are holding up the deal? I don't know if you want to negotiate in public, but exactly what are we talking about? No, uh, we have no problem telling you. We're down to now, last Thursday night, uh, different to what uh, Ms. McNeil was out publicly saying before, because they, they were not paying these workers the same as the non-union workers, so we were able to resolve that last week. We are down to a single issue, believe it or not. Uh, well, last Thursday, uh, we were led to believe, or actually, it's the employers telling us they've done an internal review of their employees. Uh, we would call it a classification review that would look at the compensation that is appropriate to workers. So we've asked for it. The employer has refused to, sh- refused to share. So it sounds familiar with the provincial government, uh, uh, the lack of transparency sharing down. So we said, okay, if that's the case. Uh, there is a classification review for just two individuals. The number one, to determine if they're appropriately compensated or deserving of greater compensation. And in an unprecedented move, because we negotiate these classification reviews with governments and multiple employers for the last decades, uh, and the employer always pays them. Said, to get this done, last Thursday night, NAEP said, we will actually pay for the classification review. They grilled the two employees. Now, they should have known their employees that actually work for them. One of them sits on the negotiating team. They grilled them for 20 minutes, walked back in the room and said, uh, no, we're not interested. Uh, they went back to their co-workers, and their co-workers have decided 100% on a secret vote to stand with those workers and say that's the very least this employer could do. So this could be resolved with a simple phone call from the CEO saying, okay, Nate, we accept your offer to pay for it, and we will live by, Patty, whatever the result of that classification. Because they got one done internally, which they won't share with us. Now Nate is prepared to pay for an external one, not done by the union, not done by the employer, a mutually agreeable third party and choice for youth negotiating team has said, uh, nope, uh, we're turning you down flat. That's where we are. Uh, just for clarification, has anybody been let go when the, the road to unionizing was taking place? Yes, there was. Initially, uh, one of the individuals that was involved in the original unionization, uh, there were two people let go. If you go and look at uh, this as an employer as an history of extensive turnover, I was just having that conversation with the picket line, uh, somebody else apparently is leaving there now, not even in the bargaining side of things. 
they have a number of vacancies that that's reflective. When you have a, a steady turnover in employees, that's reflective of an organization that's problematic uh, at the upper level. The frontline workers here are quite proud. We have two other certification orders actually in because these employees came to us in three different sites looking for representation because of the disrespect they were receiving from the executive management team. It was never really about uh, any uh, amount of conversation, though they haven't had a raise in 12 years or the management team has. Uh, they wanted a united voice because they feared their employer. That's the reason they actually came and looked to join a union. Without any skin in the game, of course, uh, like most, our concern would be about the children. Do you have, and I know the, the, responsible, the responsibility lies with choices for youth and the liability re- re- is, pardon me, is with choices for youth. Do we have any understanding of what's going on with the children? Petty, it's something, again, I wish somebody in the executive side can explain. There is a congregate setting that you relied reference there called the Lily. It's here on Bond Street. It has 14, I'd call them almost like apartments in them where these youth live, some of them for several years. When the strike commenced, they uprooted those youths and moved them to the Choices 8 Hotel. After 8 p.m. in the evening, these are very vulnerable youth that need constant care in some cases. They've come to the picket line to look for some of it, uh, and we've actually paid for taxis. So they walk from the Choices from the Super 8 down to the picket line, and they were walking back when we realized it. So we actually now, if they come down, we say to these kids, that's not safe. So the counselors there in the picket line actually pay for cabs when they come down there to seek for support. So, Because after 8 p.m. in the evening, from what we're being told by these youth is the front desk clerk at the Super 8 Hotel is responsible for it. That is unbelievable. We're wondering where the child youth advocate is and where the minister is because they were receiving 24-hour counseling and support because they are extremely vulnerable. Talking to these workers this morning, they're actually losing sleep knowing that at, after 8 p.m., there's nobody caring for these youth, as we're being told. And if Choice for You can explain something different, they should have never been taken as the lily to begin with, because that was number one, that's something that upset them. This was their home. These workers are on the corporate office on Duckworth Street. They are not picketing the lily. So we can't get an explanation why they uprooted them from a facility that's structurally sound, that they have management, because they have 27 managers or something, that I assume will be able to care for these youth. And now I was in a, in a hotel where understanding $1,600, $1,800 per day. Yeah. Can't understand it. Jerry, I appreciate the update this morning, and hopefully both sides will be able to return to the table to strike a deal. So most importantly, I guess for me anyway, just on a personal note, is that all the programs and services that these vulnerable children need are back in place so we can get back to business. As soon as follow padding, and actually we've even taken another step now, we've written the Minister actually of Labour asking for the imposition of conciliation board now to try to get this moving forward. We've done that last Thursday. As of today, we have not heard even from the Minister of this government. So it's time that either the Minister of Labour, uh, Minister Habit or somebody step in uh, and get this um, somebody try to draw this to a conclusion because these workers have tried everything possible, uh, returning to the table twice, uh, agreeing to unprecedented language, uh, willing to pay for a review and management choices for you keep saying no repeatedly. Appreciate the update, Jerry. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. As name President Jerry Earl. Okay, time for a break. When we come back, 
It looks like the provincial government in the Department of Justice and Public Safety is going to blend what is a quasi-independent board or panel that governs the province's 911 system. That's going to be part of the government department. The implications of that, we'll find out after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. I think many people will be surprised that there's actually a reserve fund at NL911 that sits at about $20 million. And that comes from the 75 cents you pay on your phone bill for provincial 911. So with the possibility, or it looks like the likelihood, of it being blended into the Department of Justice and Public Safety, it gives people pause for concern as to what kind of government action will happen with that $20 million. Join us on line number three. is independent member of the House of Assembly from Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thank you for taking my call this morning. No problem. Patty, uh, yes, uh, I wanted to speak about uh, the bill we're talking about is Bill 41. Uh, it received first reading in the House Assembly back in October, but then it ended up being left on the order paper without um, debating the bill. So it's still there, and it was supposed to be debated in the House yesterday, uh, but for some reason, uh, government changed their mind and chose not to uh, n- uh, not to debate it yesterday. But I do believe. Minister Hogan is doing some sort of a uh, media uh, event sometime this morning to, to talk about it. Um, but uh, just a little bit of history on it. The, the, the bill we're talking about, Bill 41, it's entitled An Act Respecting Province-Wide 911 Service for the Reporting of Emergencies. And um, I, I guess we go back to prior to 2015, we did not have any provincial 911. There was 911 uh, here in the St. John's metro area and so on, which was uh, managed by the uh, St. John's Regional Fire Department. That's st- still in place. Uh, and the RNC, I believe, had a 911 uh, out in Cornerbrook. But for the rest of the province, there, you know, there was no 911. So the government of the day, uh, and back in, I, I did a little bit of research, and was uh, I was there at the time, but it was back in um, 2015, then Minister of uh, Municipal uh, Affairs and Fire Emergency Services, Dan Crummel, brought in the bill to establish a provincial 911. And and I, and and I do believe, if memory serves me, the work leading up to that was done uh, when Kevin O'Brien was minister prior to, prior to Dan taking over uh, that role. So when that bill came into play for provincial 911 uh, system, um, the, part of that was to set up what they call a 911 uh, bureau um, as a separate entity that would look after prov- uh, 911 for the province, and they would report to an independent board of directors and so on so in order to fund this new initiative as you alluded to 75 cents went on everybody's phone bill and that was your landline and every cell phone you owned and if you're a business and you had multiple lines in your business then you had to pay 75 cents every month on every phone uh, what I'm told is of the 75 cents seven cents of it goes to the uh, or goes to the um, phone provider because they're the ones who are collecting the fee and remitting it to government so that's their administration fee so 68 cents went to uh, the 911 bureau now of that 68 cents of course uh, some of that money goes to fund the ongoing operations of the 911 bureau of the staffing of the equipment and and, and everything else associated to running provincial 911 once the uh, once that is taken care of then the additional funds that are left over from that 68 cents go into an enhanced 911 fund fund 
Um, and so I can't tell you exactly what that amount is. But if you do the math, uh, right now there's 20, I'm told, right now there's $20 million sitting in that fund. And I guess if you do the math, uh, since 2015, that's like seven years ago. So I guess seven into $20 million, we're talking about roughly $2.8 million a year, I guess, that's going into that fund year over year on average, if you if you look at that number. Sure. We had a right. Don Peckamon, who's the board chair at NL911. Yep. His concern is the same as yours the only question i would ask of it is what's even government's ability or opportunity to raid that fund for other things given the fact that the crtc has mandated the move towards next generation 911 which is going to come with an associated cost so they're either going to use that money or have to refunnel money from somewhere else when we make all these improvements well that's the point i I guess patty is what what i was told in the briefing that i went to uh, yesterday is that this 20 million dollars is going to go into government general revenues yep. so in other words that's gone and i guess uh, on a go forward basis every time you're paying your 75 cents on your phone and and a portion of that money was going into the enhanced 911 fund that is going to go into uh, government coffers and what the government is saying is that we are still committed uh, you know, whatever that means, and we've heard lots of commitments over the years to an enhanced 911 system. Uh, and when the time comes about and everything is approved with the CRTC and we're ready to move, whenever that is, then we're committed to doing it at that time. But for now, all the money is going into the government general coffer. So my sure. point on it and my concern, I guess, is that you and I and everybody else in this province we're told up front, this is why you are paying this fee. This is the purpose of this money. Now that money is basically just turning into another tax. And, and, and whether government decides at some point to take that portion of money or money from some other source uh, to put in 911, an enhanced 911 in place, well, that's up to them. That may or may not happen. There could be a new government by the time it ever comes to fruition, and they may not make it a priority. So, But I don't think they're going to have any know. opportunity to prioritize it or not. I think it's if it's a mandate by the regulator, then it's just a matter of time before it has to be completed. So it's either they use the $20 million and leave it in that fund and let it grow, or they put it in general revenue, uh, general coffers, and use it whenever is required, because this is coming. The CRT is quite clear on this stuff. The enhancements to next gen 911 is is just going to happen whether or not the government is running it in the department and or NL 911 survives as the independent or quasi independent panel that they currently are. So I, I mean I don't dispute your point because when government has full and distinct control of any nickel, we should be worried about how it's spent. Well, exactly, and and, and I liken it. I mean it's a much smaller scale, Patty, but I liken it to the fact that when government had the ability to raid the uh, pension funds, and we know what happened there. So, uh, I mean, I know it's a much smaller scale, so, uh, you know, maybe it's a bit dramatic of a comparison, but it's the same point. The point is, over the years, the government had the ability to raid the uh, provincial pensions, and they did that for years and years, spent the money on other things, and then we end up with a shortfall, and the whole system had to be changed, and now it's being managed independently, so that can never happen again. So, here's another case of money going into something for for an express purpose that people bought into, or, or, well, whether they bought into or not, it happened, but that was the explanation given, and now that money now will find its way into general revenues of the government. Understood. Yep. Appreciate the time, That's Paul. Concern. Anyway, thank you, Betty. Oh, you're all the best. Bye-bye. It's Paul Lane. He's the independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, that pension issue, that rooster came home to roost. That was both federal and provincial where we saw some of those moves made. And, you know, I saw someone use a pretty, I think, 
insightful quote or tweet yesterday is that we don't have a, a scarcity of money. We have a problem with distribution. Let's take a break for the news. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Let's take a one to the board chair at TechNL. That's Dan Brake. Uh, good morning, Dan. You're on the air. Excellent. Good morning. How's, how's everything? I'm doing very well, sir. How about you? I'm very well. I have to say, uh, TechNL has been a pretty effective rebrand because I had to rack my brain to ca- try to recall what you once were called, which was Natty. So <laughs> that's probably a very good sign. And I do see some news coming from your organization that you've appointed a new CEO. That's Florian Viome, and he replaces Paul Preston, who's moved on to another opportunity. Tell us about Florian. Yeah, so uh, we went through a pretty extensive uh, search. We had um, almost 70 candidates uh, from across Canada and around the world. Um, so, um, and Florian really stood out as the as the top candidate. He's uh, he's here in the community, so he's, he's a well-known entity. And uh, we've been working with him on different initiatives over the past few years in partnership. But uh, yeah, he he really stands out as a candidate. And we're delighted to uh, have him on board to take the helm. And you're fairly new to your position as well. I think you just took it on mid last year. So where is Florian coming from? Is it the Center for Entrepreneurship? Yeah, sure. Uh, so Florian uh, was at the Memorial Center for Entrepreneurship, where um, he really um, he really launched it and grew that into uh, a, you know international award winning um, incubator. Uh, so he's done tremendous work there. Um, he's also done a lot of work in the community around diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion, uh, which is something that really speaks to uh, speaks to TechNL as well. It's something we need to, we need more of. Um, he's also really passionate about the sector. Um, so all the work that he's done in MTE uh, kind of ties into um, kind of ties into the work that we're doing at Tech. L really, you know, we want to grow the sector to benefit all our member companies, but also the province as a whole. And I think, um, you know, Florian's an excellent person to take that take that on. So inside tech, of course, it's the shiny object, it's the innovation, it's the advancing of a technology. But speak about how important his background in entrepreneurship is, because it's one thing to create, another thing to monetize it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, gone are the days where you can just you know produce tech for tech's sake. Um, I think if you you know if you look at the province of where we can really have um, really have a, a, a big impact, and that's um, that's entrepreneurship and really you know taking some of the new innovative technologies that we have and really finding uh, commercial outcomes for those. Um, COVID's really proven that we're we're part of a, a global economy, and, and you can work from Newfoundland and Labrador and and compete on the global global stage. So there's uh, but yeah, I agree. I mean, without the commercial commercial outcomes, then the the, uh, the benefit to the to the province and society as a whole is is going, is going to be limited. Canada has long been really good at R&D, but not so great at monetizing. So this is a brave new world, and we're seeing massive opportunities here. But those opportunities can only be satisfied if we have the pool of talent to draw from. I know there's new programs that have been created, new focus on it. But where are we? What's the status of the talent pool? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great question because the talent pool is, um, if you think about where we need to be um, in terms of the talent, you look at the growth of our of our membership companies for the last year or so. I mean, um, uh, put it this way, anyone who wants a, a career in, in the tech sector, and that's not just programming, that's, you know, marketing, customer success, 
uh, programming and databases and cloud development all those types of things are in there but but we need uh, we need people across the board and if we and uh, really from a talent perspective um, you have to look at it holistically uh, so if you think about long term we really need to be speaking more to our high school students we're doing tech is doing a lot of work we had over 100 students involved in an internship program high school students involved in an internship program last summer we're hoping to repeat the same this year uh, we're very supportive of um, internships and getting you know setting up um, working with the with local colleges and and the university to um, you know to, to have a look at the the course content and ensuring that we have people that align with with the, um, the industry needs. But then also there you know there's immigration. Um, we, we need more women in tech. We need need more diversity. So those those are also really big files for us uh, with um, you know being supportive of the women in tech movement and, and also being supportive of immigration here in the province. I mean we need we need people. We need people now. And so there's um, really it's not something you can tackle by doing any one thing. Uh, and you know, Technel has a team in place uh, with a, a broad set of competencies to look at look at this uh, holistically, so we can we can really bring more talent to the sector. And good partnerships with po- folks like uh, Task Force NL to try to find placements for students has been, I think, a big success as well. So some people say, because I try to talk about tech a little bit, because it is one of the growth opportunities that we have here in the province, I'm accused uh, always of being exaggerating the opportunities, but I don't think I am. I mean, we might not be able to replicate the success of a Verifin, but we certainly can replicate the success of the get me, the uh, MISA smart thermostats or the Colab softwares or the Hay Orcas of the world. So People say that I'm exaggerating the opportunities, am I? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, if you look at um, MISA right now, are looking for um, people. Well, actually, both MISA and Colab, um, you know, both are receiving over twenty million in uh, financing. They're looking for people right across the board, from from junior employees to really senior, you know, vice presidents and management, those types of things. So there's there's broad skill sets and lots of lots of talent required just for those two companies alone. You look at uh, Milk Movement um, as well as they're doing really well. Sequence Bio, which is um, um, which is you know another local startup who, you know, who are definitely going to be needing people. And then Verifin as well, you know, the fact that they were, um, you know, with the big acquisition last year, you know, they're going to need a lot of people as well. So there's also a whole bunch of brand new startups who are getting up and running right now. Um, you know, it bounces over 40 of them. We, you know, Genesis has, has an amazing system of, of, um, of talented uh, entrepreneurs and companies going through there. So I think if we look across the ecosystem, there are opportunities everywhere. If, uh, if you're interested in the sector and you're interested in the industry, you know, if you, you know, you figure out what you're interested in, I'm pretty sure there's, there's, uh, there's a job waiting for you in, in the tech sector. And it's proven that you can do it here. Sometimes we've had a bit of a defeatist attitude. Well, this is not Silicon Valley or it's not Singapore, Hong Kong. It doesn't matter anymore. The success stories are real and they're here. You know, adding other ocean and others. I think Pete Bear is actually on your board as well. So yep. the opportunities are absolutely right in front of us here. And it's also important to remember that it's not just about the innovators themselves. It's not just about the tech sector as a standalone entity. Tech is everywhere. You're going to be able to work in all kinds of industries with a technological background. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, if we look at everything that's happening in, um, you know, since Bounce has been launched, you have companies like PolyUnity and BreatheSuite. And so, you know, that's all these things happening in the healthcare space. You have a lot of di- digitization now in the oil and gas sector. And you're, you're completely right. I mean, if you look at um, 
uh, Newfoundland and Labrador on, on the global stage. Stage. Uh, I mean, we're punching above our weight. Our, our companies have been incredibly successful. Uh, there's a lot of spotlights that uh, came on the province with the, with the Verifin acquisition. But uh, I think as people are like, you know, that's just scratching the surface. You, there's a lot of depth here. So there's, um, yeah, there's, there's tremendous opportunity. And, and I agree. I mean, we're, we're definitely punching above our weight on the global scale. And um, you know, there's tremendous ideas and fantastic the, the talent that comes from Newfoundland and, and Labrador. So we're, we're really excited about where this can go. You mentioned high school students. Is it a matter of you going to them or they, can they come to you for guidance? Uh, well, both really. We <laughs> we love hearing from students. I think there's uh, there's a lot more uh, that we can do for, for uh, high school students. I mean, back in the day when we were graduating from high school, there was a whole lot of, of worker jobs here in Newfoundland and Labrador. So it's it's really exciting to see that we have a whole generation now of people that can, uh, you know, that you know, with an interest of of uh, either you know you know starting a company or joining an existing company or whatever. There's just a tremendous amount of opportunity for students, um, uh, high school students, to be able to, to graduate and look at what they want to do next. There's lots of fantastic programming through through the colleges and university and the Marine Institute. I just think there's there's uh, it's a really really good time to be starting a career. And if you're interested in technology, it's a really good time to to um, you know to to jump on um, to jump on technology. And, and I mean you'll have a you'll have a career for life. And I know it's not for everyone. Don't get me wrong. There's mm-hmm. lots of other things people want to do. But um, I think as as a sector, it's. Uh, yeah, if you want to be, if you want to do something that'll be fascinating and interesting, there, there's a there's a ton of different uh, companies in different sectors. Uh, exciting opportunities to say it's a growth industry or growth sector is a absolute understatement. Dan, it's good to have you on the program today. Uh, continued good luck and successes with TechNL, and good luck to your new CEO, Mr. Vion. Thank you very much, Freddy. Take good care. Bye bye. As Dan Brake, he's the uh, board chair at TechNL. Let's take a break with the pending budget coming on Thursday, the 7th of April. Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador will be having a keen look at what's inside of that budget document that will benefit the municipalities. Amy Cody is the president of MNL. She's up after this. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let us go. Line number two, say good morning to the president at Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Amy Cody. Good morning, Amy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks. How about you? I'm better than the weather here in Central today. It's a bit of a yucky, snowy day, but that's it. We are in Newfoundland. It is April as early. Sloppy <laughs> around town here today now, too. Oh, uh, we had a lot of snow, so we're dealing with it. But anyway, that's not the reason for my call today. The reason I'm calling today, actually, is just to touch on uh, the submissions by uh, municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador, for the provincial and federal budget, which are both coming out on the same day on Thursday, which is uh, definitely an exciting time and probably uh, unprecedented. I'm not sure if, if budgets have been released on the same day like that before, but it's not new to us, given that the municipal election and federal election were held on the same day last year so it's something that we're getting accustomed to but it makes a lot for me too i have to admit okay so what specifically yeah what specifically are we looking at uh so far as municipalities are concerned with either the provincial or federal budgets let's start with the province Sure. The provincial budget, we, in our pre-budget submission to uh, the Minister of Finance, Siobhan Cody, there were several um, investment priorities for us. Obviously, the protection of the municipal investment, the MOGs at $22 million, um, that's, you know, that has to be maintained, in our opinion. Um, we rely predominantly on re- revenue from taxation uh, to support the operations of municipalities, and the MOGs are, are important to us. That ensures stability in our sector 
sector. So, you know, we know that that has to be maintained. We can't uh, we can't constantly be relying on our uh, taxation base, our residents, to be uh, you know constantly uh, increasing their their taxes to be able to continue to provide services. So that's a big thing for us. Um, obviously, new investments for the regionalization process, and we know that has been a super hot topic for you, especially um, on open line and through all the media outlets. Um, we know that there are concerns. We know people have questions. And uh, we know that in order to do this right, that there has to be investment in that process. It's not something that can be done as an additional portfolio or file on somebody's desk. Uh, there needs to be separate resources uh, set aside for that to make sure that it happens and that it's done properly. And uh, so, you know, we're we're pretty steadfast in that um, there needs to be money set aside for that process. What about the federal um, government? The federal government, basically, um, we've asked for um, more multi-year funding tools like the Canada Community Building Fund, and we need longer-term infrastructure planning. We know that a lot of these terms are are within a couple of years, um, and that's short for us. It takes a lot of planning and investment and, and the ability to be able to spread out that money. Um, so longer-term infrastructure planning there would certainly be a help for us. Um, and, you know, as a matter of fact, in continued partnership with the Harris Centre, we have a session on today on municipal infrastructure that our very own uh, Dr. Kathleen Perowick is hosting. So that's an important session. Um, it, you know, we know that that level of, of funding has to be maintained and and uh, the ability to be able to apply for that funding needs to be increased as well. We know municipalities took a good knock uh, throughout the pandemic. There were indeed the support money set aside. There's a lot of questions being asked of the Minister of Finance federally, uh, Christian Freeland, about like in our first budget, there was a risk of doing too little. This one, there's a risk of doing too much. Is there any additional COVID-specific recovery money still needed by municipalities? Well, we're still struggling, obviously. Um, we had to make a lot of changes to uh, the programs that we offer, to the infrastructure that we were able to complete. We're still recovering. Um, it's still a, a recovery for everybody, really, but municipalities in particular. We know that um, you know we're behind on infrastructure needs. We need to catch up. We need to continue working. So, you know, we're going to continue to ask for funding um, wherever we can get it to help us maintain our municipalities and I think you know as we move forward through COVID um, that'll be top of mind and it'll obviously be a continued conversation that we'll have with the federal government as well as provincially. I would imagine we'll be talking in short order on the heels of both provinces and the federal government's budget. Anything else you'd like to say this morning Amy? No, I, actually, Patty, I will take an opportunity just to talk on regionalization again and the importance. I know you've been carrying the load. A lot of the calls coming in from municipalities, from LSDs, there's concerns and questions, and we understand that. And I think our key message really is that the release of this report is not the plan. This is the start of a process. And I think that's key. Um, what this, the release of this report has done has started the conversation, which has been so needed. We have been talking about regionalization as, a munis as municipalities for 20-odd years. Um, we understand the concerns of our own municipalities. We represent our members. Um, and we understand the concerns of those living in LSDs and UIAs. There was consultation. There was two years of consultation that did happen. And there was representation from LSDs and UIAs. And as a matter of fact, you 
you know, even though they make up just 9% of the population, they actually represented 25% of the comments during consultations. So we did hear from them. Their input was taken into consideration uh, in working on this report. Um, And, you know, now that the report is out there, um, we have everybody's attention, and that was the intent of the report. This is a process now. We need to continue the conversation. We know regionalization is necessary, and we're going to continue to have the conversation and move it forward with the LSDs, the UIAs, the municipalities, and with the provincial government. So we really appreciate you taking all those calls. Yeah, no problem. It's part of the gig, and UIA would be an unincorporated municipality, Un- right? incorporated area that's correct appreciate the time this morning amy thank you thank you so much you're welcome take care bye-bye uh let's go line number three tom you're on the air good morning patty good morning to you um i just want to start with a reference to the budget coming up uh and just a message for everyone that you know just the way newfoundland's situation is that we need to learn to live with less and we need to focus on being healthier and more productive more sustainable and less wasteful and 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 calls for more, 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 um, hopefully will fall on deaf ears, but responsible and transparent government is what we need right now. Yeah, we don't have a scarcity of money. We have a distribution problem. That's basically where I come from. And, you know, government to strike a balance between uh, some controls on spending, which has been chronically overspending, has ruled the roadster in this province for the last decade or what have you. Be curious to see what they look like for a forecast of price of barrel of oil, which unfortunately still has, goes a long way in developing a budget. So, yeah, you're right. The laundry list of wants and needs and demands is long, and the opportunity for borrowing is not what it once was, and nor is that in our best interest in the long term. But anyway, go ahead, Tom. What's your topic today? Well, I want to talk a little bit about uh, EVs, and uh, there was a lot of activity yesterday and as well last week, and and there's a lot of misinformation out there or just just, uh, misunderstandings. So I just want to pick up on a few comments that people had made. And one of the big concerns is electrical, having electrical uh, ability at your home, you know, the ability to actually add it to a, you know, if you have an oil furnace, for example, you might only have an 80 or 100 amp service. So depending on your situation, um, for example, if you have a hybrid or if you're not a heavy user, you can just plug it into your external plug and that will, and that will meet your needs perfectly. I mean, in a couple hours, you can charge up what you, what the average um person in uh, who who would be like retired or who doesn't do a lot of driving might use. In Newfoundland and Labrador, for people's reference, on, on average, uh, we drive around 18,100 kilometers a year on average, and that's 19% more than in Canada. Um, so, you know, if you, if you break that down, it's about 350 kilometers a week, 70 kilometers a day. So again, overnight, um, if you don't, if that's all you drive, you'll charge that up even plugged into a regular household. But, but a lot of times people are focused on, on say, a, f- a 30, 40, 50, 60 amp fast charger. On my home, I have a 20 amp fast charger, I guess you could say, but that's only the equivalent to one 2,000 watt um, electrical uh, uh, elect- baseboard heater. What, what did it cost you to install? Well, uh, when I bought the car, they threw in that charger. Now, that's not an expensive charger to begin with. It's probably $300. Um, I uh, needed... Need to answer your question is about 300 bucks plus if I had to buy the charge it would be another say $300 and um, fortunately I had panels I'd, I'd, I'd gotten rid of a bunch of baseboard heaters and put in mini splits so I had I had breakers in my panel so you got to get a few breakers 
But for me, I would say it was about $600 what it cost me. But if you wanted to get a faster charger, then, uh, you know, you could bring that up $1,200, dollars $1,500. Uh, but it's based on what people, when they assess their needs, I mean, and put in a heavier wire when you're doing it in between, um, you know, because that'll give you the option in the future to upgrade. Yeah, and... They're not for everyone. I guess we still have to continue to say that. Then there's also some, I believe, some myths and fallacies surrounding life cycle environmental impact of, you know, mining for battery components versus what the internal combustion engine really means, insofar as emissions go anyway. Uh, there's also some concerns with the the lifespan of a battery and how a battery is disposed of when, in fact, the vast majority of the battery components are repurposed in other areas. So I, I think we, you know... Boil things down to brass tacks, and there is going to have to be improvement in technology and battery storage and the move to a solid-state battery. And, yes, there's, there's nothing's perfect. Nothing is absolutely green in this world. I get it. Operating costs, I think, is a big one. There's a report that's on my reading agenda for the afternoon. It's from Clean Energy Canada. It was just released today. They're a group at the Center for Dialogue at Simon Fraser University. It's called The True Cost. It's a look at the average cost over the course of eight years, driving 20,000 kilometers per year, EV, hybrid, versus internal combustion. It looks, by my basic skim, significant savings for EVs or hybrids, but I'm going to give it a good read later. Yeah, you know, and, you know, a few people expressed concerns with, um, with there being no engine up front, but that actually gives you more cushion, more absorption if in, a, in a frontal collision, so it actually actually makes it safer. Um, they're also, EVs are actually heavier because of the bat right now, because of the way the batteries are now, that will improve, like you just said, as as we go solid state battery stuff like that. But because the vehicle is heavier, it actually makes you makes it safer. Just just physics in a collision. The lower center of gravity, because the batteries are on the floor, also reduces your chance for rollovers. And as well, the rigidity of the battery pack makes the vehicle also more resilient. So so there's some safety issues that that are there. So I just want to encourage people, you know. To just try and be open. I know it's it's hard. People got driveways full of uh, gas vehicles. Some of them are brand new. So you know this is going to take time. There was a gentleman that said we were we were zero carbon yesterday. In actual fact, Newfoundland is 19.9 tons, almost 20 tons per capita, and and that's more than the U.S. on average. Oh, twice as over twice as much as China on average. Even more than Saudi Arabia on average. And one thing for people to consider as well is that if, if they look at our carbon budget, which is how much carbon we were, we should emit before we get to 1.5 degrees, and there's about 307 billion tons of it. And if you break that down per person, that's around uh, 39 tons per person is what we get to emit before we get to 1.5. And in the average Newfoundlander will get there in 1.92 years. And bear in mind, the average Newfoundlander makes a little over $30,000 a year for those people who make more and who have bigger vehicles and who fly, they're burning this through that way faster. So I just want to jump over to to travel quickly. Cause Very quickly, because I have to go shortly. Okay, sorry, buddy. Um, that's something that was a big part of my life. A seven-day Caribbean cruise, 4.5 tons of carbon. And and the average, if you're a Newfoundlander and you've got a pickup truck, you're emitting around 4.39 tons per year. If you have a Honda Civic, about 2.32 tons. So getting on a cruise, flying to Orlando, over two tons for two people. So cr- travel is a big part, and a lot of it is because of radiative forcing, which is which is the concept that when you're up in the air, it has a greater impact on, on climate change. So everybody just try and think about this stuff and absorb it, try and stay safe, and uh, and, and have a good day. Appreciate your time, Tom. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, Randy wants to talk about CRA. And that's me speaking with CRA. That's Patty Daly, spelled S-M-I-T-H. Let's take a break. Don't go away. 
Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Randy, you're on the air. Good, good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Oh, not too bad, not too bad. I'm a, I'm a long-time listener, many-year listener. Thank you very much for tuning in, and thanks for the call. What's on your mind? I'll tell you what's on my mind, Patty. I wonder if anybody else is getting... Uh, Getting a runaround from the Canadian Revenue Agency, uh, like I have been since the 31st of January. What kind of runaround are you getting? What's the issue? Well, the, the runaround is that I was in receipt of Canadian worker lockdown benefits, and I haven't received one in my account deposited since the 31st of January. Okay, and that continues on until I believe the 7th of May this year. So yeah. you have a bigger problem with Service Canada then, I think, because they're the one administering this plan, aren't they? No, well, I'll tell you what, now, I'm after Common Sense Consulting in Marystown, who goes up, who've been doing my income tax for years. Uh, they say that I failed to confirm my identity on five different occasions. I haven't confirmed my identity now. I'll be 62 year old in September, right? And, and I mean, oh, the foolishness. So they asked me what was on the line of my, of my income tax return. It was 50 something thousand, whatever. So. So anyway, this is the So then I had my kick off. And the next week I had to call in again. Well, what's on the line on your T4? I said, well, I don't have a T4 in front of me. But I said, if you want to ask me what's on the line of one of my income tax returns, I got it right here in front of me. No, I can't ask you the same question as what the other person asked you. So yeah, I've been getting a run around, Patty. I haven't gotten a cent now from the Canadian Revenue Agency, Canadian Worker Lockdown Benefits, since the 31st of January. What's the date, the 5th of April? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I certainly can't explain what's going on at CRA. It's hard enough to get to speak with someone at CRA, let alone to deal with the potential runaround and hurdles that we all face. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, something you call up, you're going to have to wait anywhere up to three to five hours. And, and, and uh, well, then, they, then they, well, lo and behold, then you'll take your phone number. But I never got a call back. And, and then if you, and if you miss, say, two calls, and oh, there's... Oh, uh, oh my goodness. Bullshit. Yeah, Bullshit. yeah we needn't say that. But oh. Okay, I, I wish I had some direction or guidance or an answer for you, but CRA is a tricky behemoth to deal with. Yes, they are tricky behemoths, yeah. yeah. You know, the, the, the most satisfaction that I got, Patty, was, was, was when I had the opportunity to talk to people from Newfoundland in my pro office. And there was a young man there, Graham. He said, no, I'll go to bat for you. And I mean, and but I tried to get in contact with him again. No, I couldn't get in contact with him or this young guy, Ryan. There's always someone from up in the mainland, and I got nothing against anybody. But look, I, I, I just look, I just want a little bit of money deposited in my account. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why the, the delay between deposits, but hopefully you get some satisfaction soon, Randy. Yeah, well, tell you what, now, I, I just called a uh, Common Sense Consulting in Marystown. They're after calling up for me. They're after six lots of documentation now to verify my identity, and, and they can't find it. But, it, but lo and behold, the lady calls up. They couldn't find it for me, but when she called up, Amanda, they found it right away. Hmm. So now the other day, now, I had to send it up on the 24th of March because I, I deal with the credit union in Marystown, and lo and behold, the bank stamp was, was a bit blurry. So now everything else is there, Patty. All my, all my, all my banking information is there. But because that bank stamp was a bit blurry, no, no. So then they had to, I had to go to the credit union marriage stamp, go to Common Sense Consulting, and said, now make sure that stamp is perfect. It's got to be perfect for the CRA. 
So anyway, I called up again yesterday. They still haven't received it. So one of the girls are going to call up again for me now to see, because the chances are that they're going to find it when they call. So okay. <laughs> well, whoever's got the magic touch, put them on the job. <laughs> yeah, right on, Patty. Well, thanks a million. Now you're putting out another fine show. I'm going to call you again very soon about uh, about uh, uh, mental health and about how I was treated, not only myself, but other people were treated at the Waterford Hospital in January of 2020. We went 14 days, Patty, t- uh, 12 to 14 days, had to bath and shower in cold water. Oh, man. Not yeah. good enough. I really appreciate the time, Randy. Fingers crossed. Good luck to you. Okay, thanks for being in, y'all. Take well, care. You're welcome. All righty. Bye-bye. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, what, what should we do here? Let's check, check in on the Twitter box. Whoever you him open line, you know what to do. Follow us there. Suggest any topics uh, that you'd be interested in. Elaborate on what you hear on the air. Criticize as you see fit. And our email address is openline.vocm.com. Let's go ahead and take a break, though, when we come back. Uh, first caller this morning, I think it was the first caller, was Dave talking about some of the issues regarding the seal harvest. Mike wants to respond to Dave right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go top of the board. Line number one, Mike, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Patty, uh, your first caller this morning, Dave, I believe it was, uh, triggered me. I guess perhaps may not be the right term to use uh, with his comments about the uh, but the ceiling issue again. Of course, I've, I had about oh, maybe 25 years, close on that, uh, actively in the ceiling, from the engine rooms to the boardrooms, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, in Canada and the United States and in Europe and in Asia and things like that. So I have a long history in that industry. Uh, of course, some of his remarks, they come from the heart. I understand them. I know where they're coming from, and harvesters in particular, particularly frustrated with what's going on when you see the amount of, um, you know, the amount of impact that the seals are having on the, on fish stocks. Uh, people living in communities that never saw them before, seals up in the up in the communities and up in the up in the, the rivers, and you know, just devastating the stocks entering into the rivers and things like that. I think we all agree that it's a very frustrating position for them to be in. Uh, however, any kind of a culting would be something like throwing gasoline on a, a fire. I think you made some really good remarks, some really good comments on that. Patty, we continue to treat the symptoms, but not the disease. The symptoms, of course, are the burgeoning seal hunt or seal uh, seal stocks. It just completely, uh, if harvesters are to be believed, and I believe them, um, they're completely out of control. They're they're just phenomenally the, the amounts of them and the impact they're having on the environment are just incredibly. I think, and I agree with harvesters on this, they're incredibly, you know, not positive. They're very negative impacts that the seals are having. The real problem we've had, Patty, on this industry um, is not as much the Department of Fisheries inaccurate and, uh, and, uh, and, and I must admit, I'll fully admit to this, I have no faith in their science. I don't trust their science. I, I think the science is manipulated, certainly maybe not by the scientists themselves, but by politicians and, and senior managers in the Department of Fisheries on the way through. But Patty Fisheries doesn't control this issue. They merely administer the issue. The actual issue itself is controlled by uh, international trade and by global affairs, foreign affairs. They're the ones who pulled the string on this back in 85 when Mr. Crosby was a representative in Ottawa. 
they're the ones who hogtied the response, the Mullough Royal Commission response uh, to seals and sealing in Canada. It was those departments that did the damage and continue to do the damage this day. Do you know, the issue is not product development. We have great product development, and we could develop more. Private sector could use that meat, blubber, um, you know, the uh, the pelts. Um, they've got uses for those, a measurable amount of uses, but they got no market, Patty. they got no market. And if we go out and kill for the sake of killing, no matter how right it might be, we're just really going to get ourselves slapped around all again like we did in the 70s and 80s with the, uh, with the fake news, I'll call it. It was the original fake news, you know. It doesn't need to be true. You just make it the allegation. And, uh, and, and these fundraising groups, International Fund for Animal Welfare, yes, World Wildlife Federation. These guys, by the way, are now high up in government advising the Minister of Environment and other places on our offshore oil. So, Patty, uh, the, it's still a market. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, the, the, it's the market and the trade issue, which I think gets lost in the shuffle here. Absolutely. I mean, anecdotal and real-world real world evidence is there about what's inside the stomach of a seal. We all know it. The harvesters know it. They cut them open on the wharf and can show it quite clearly. But the issue is just not quite as simple as that. In many corners, people think the seal conversation is over. The population of an owl, whether it be 7.6 million or whatever the case may be, it's very likely becoming unhealthy for the seals themselves. So that's another part of the conversation that kind of gets left by the wayside. But if you have decisions made by global organizations about trade and bans and the like, then call for cult's sake without a market for product will probably be problematic. It might be good for harvesters. It may be good for the rebound and the rebuilding of the northern cod stock, but everything has different implications associated with these big world decisions. So I get it. I hear the conversation. I don't know how many times we've talked about seals on this program, but it's a little bit bigger than the narrow focus of cod stock. Oh, it's massive. You know, the big issue under the boycotting of these businesses, I often somewhat facetiously say that, you know, the, the, the fish processors, the big processors in the province, they're so far under the desk. You need a light to go in to hunt for them to bring them out. They're just not in it. But you got to keep in mind, they're, they're targets. And if we create targets for this trade and the salmon producers up in British Columbia, he, were, he alluded to them, and the, the, the cheese producers in Quebec, that's where the pressure comes from on international trade. It, uh, we're, we're so small. We're such a small part of the Canadian economy. You know, we don't register even under scale. So it's easy to sacrifice us. And, and, uh, and foreign affairs, quite frankly, and global affairs, international trade, they really don't care that we're suffering on this. They could care less. And so, you know, recently the Fish Food and Allied Workers Union read a really nice video. They've been speaking about this. I hope they'll go on and do something about this. I hope they will take the lead in creating an arm's length body to deal with this of like-minded people, of uh, international partners like Iceland and Aboriginal groups and things, and, and take control of it locally in Newfoundland and Labrador. Don't depend on Ottawa. Ottawa is not going to do this. They're too afraid. How many more years? We've got almost 50 years of proof now. And if you don't get it by now, that Ottawa is not going to do this. And the province, well, it's a footnote with the province. They don't even have anybody in the Department of Histories looking after the issue. 
So yes, Dave, I understand where you're coming from. You made some really good remarks. I understand your frustration. I understand the frustration of the harvesters out there in the communities that are getting devastated by these stocks. And and they can't go catch a fish and yet they see what's going on. I understand all of that. But Patty, until we take the lead in this issue, it's not going to be done. Ottawa keeps hoping it'll go away on its own. And it's not. It's not going away. Well, history proves it is not going away, because if it was going to away, it would have went away years ago. Yeah. Appreciate this, Mike. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Okay, let's keep rolling here. Line number two. Joe, you're on the the air. Pardon me. Hi, how are you doing? Doing okay. How about you? Pretty good. Uh, Patty, I just want to get my two cents for it on the issue in Ukraine. Sure. Now, I was taught, I saw the pitiful things that were happening last night, this genocide that was going on, you know, in that country over the past month or more. And, like, nobody's asked the question, why? Why is he doing this? Why are the Russians in there? Why are, why are they taking lives like that? Is there a reason? Well, there's not a good reason. Um, I think it's quite as simple as trying to reclaim some of the former Soviet states and land grab. There's actually a paper came out of the Kremlin last evening that talks about erasing the Ukrainian identity, and that's because now the accusations of war crimes, especially the massacre in Bucha, which is just horrifying to watch. I don't think there's any sane rationale for what's going on here. It's long been a threat. It's not the first time he's done it. He's been in Georgia. He's been in Crimea, and I don't think the world should be surprised that he's doing this at this moment of time in the Ukraine, but we can all be shocked with, with the way they're doing it. Yeah, but he's been doing it in Georgia and, uh, and all this. He's not getting away with it, but I don't understand the rest of the world, the rest of the leaders. I mean, all, all they're doing is talking. You know, they're, they're not doing anything. They're like, you know, is this going to end up as a third world war? And, what, you know, people, you're talking like millions of people running from their homeland. Millions. Right, but you're this saying... what a nation, isn't it? Yeah, you know, there's, I don't know, maybe four million have already left. Um, so you're saying on one hand that the world leaders aren't doing anything other than talking, but of course they provided tons of humanitarian and military aid. But then you also move on to say, you know, what's going to be the end result here, World War Three? Well, I tell you what, if the Americans or any NATO countries or the close proximity to other European countries, if they set foot or drop a missile into Russia, then that's the risk isn't it, is that it won't end there. Well, listen, what would happen if Putin said, uh, I'm going to invade the United States or I'm going to invade Canada? What's to stop him? Well, what happened then? There would be a third world war, wouldn't there? Well, that would trigger Article 5 of the uh, <laughs> North Atlantic Treaty, which means an attack on one is an attack on all. So if he attacked the United States or uh, Canada or any of the other 30 ne- member nations of NATO, then absolutely it would be game on and maybe game over. Yeah. No, that's the problem. See, that's what I'm saying. That's the problem. But, like, I don't understand why he wants this this piece of land. For what? I mean, these people are, were living, breathing people who've got kids, who who has you know, trying to make a life for themselves, doing everything the same as yourself or me or anybody here in, in Newfoundland, in Alberta, wherever. And if something like that happened to us, Jesus, you know, that's shameful. And for what? I, I don't understand why you have to do this. I mean, last time some genocide ever happened like this, Hitler was involved. And what happened to him? He was a chick. He killed That's himself. Person. 
he he just did he just killed us he just killed himself because he didn't want to face the people. And is that what's going to happen here? Is somebody going to go in and say, listen, enough is enough? Surely the heavens, he's got uh, people running Russia that saying, look, you know, um, Mr. Putin, you're doing wrong here. Yeah, but there was just an independent poll done in Russia. His popularity numbers have not fallen off that far. He's well, I still... don't know. Now, part of that is because they've been shielded from what's actually happening, which, Jeez. of course, when that's the case, if you think that the... Uh, almighty supreme leader Putin can do no wrong but you're not being told the actual facts on the ground and the massacres and the atrocities being committed in Ukraine then you know it's hard to know what the people Russian people know or don't know Daddy is he a member of the G8 G7 yeah G7, G20. There's talk about banishing him from that and the UN committees. Just imagine. I mean, they have a veto at the Secretary, the the Security (laughs) Council. So there's going to have to be something done with Russia long term, of course. Yes. And what happens if they do? Nothing. And how many more people do we have to kill to take over this land? And where is he going to go from there? You know? I mean, look, uh, here we are, like, we're we're a small country. We were a nation of of our own back before 49. And, you know, we didn't, uh, you know, we just knew for land. But he's doing the same thing. Uh, You know, like, he's killing people for no reason whatsoever. I don't see, I don't see why he's killing people, tying their hands behind their back and shooting them. And I had to have the people being buried behind a church in a pit. It's sad. It's outrageous, and nobody speaks up, and nobody says enough is enough. And nobody gets on a plane. And all these countries, 200 people, uh, 200 countries in this world, and nobody's speaking up. Nobody said enough is enough. And why don't they all get in a plane and land in Russia and say, listen, we're staying here until we speak to Mr. Putin? How yeah. come they're not doing that? Well, you'd be disappeared. It'd be the most unsafe thing to do in this world, probably. Why would it be unsafe, Patty? Well, if he's willing Are to... Are saying that Putin will kill every one of those people who landed? Well, he's disappearing protesters pretty quick. That's his own people. Well, I'm talking about leaders here, Patty. I'm talking about the President of the United States. The optics, of the... That's that's an optical move as opposed to no, but anything I'm that's... No, saying hard. somebody got to do something. Okay. I mean, they had the Nuremberg trials after, after the Second World War, and that stopped nearly everything. And then they had the quiet war, and then they put up the the Berlin Wall and all this. And now here we are in 2020 after suffering through three and a half years of COVID, this lunatic over uh, over at another place is trying to kill people. For... I understand. I heard you say that, Joe, but you're making the point that how do you negotiate with an absolute madman? That's the problem here. We're not talking about... He's a lunatic. Nobody's after telling them that. I've never heard anybody get on and say, Putin, you're a lunatic. Oh, well, they all... I mean, most of the big leaders in the world and certainly a lot of military experts and all sorts of uh, international leaders have called him every name in the book. You know, a war criminal is a long way to go. Well, they're saying it. I'm not sure what what else you can say beyond he's a war criminal. That just implies the madman that he is. Uh, Joe, wait for the news. Appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate it, Patty. Thanks very much. Enjoy your day. You'll be safe. You too, Joe. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. The question is, you know, how does it end? Where does it end? 
so-called off-ramps. And people are talking about negotiating peace with some sort of compromises. Compromising with a madman seems like fool's errand and a dangerous one at that. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Jerry. You're on the air. Yeah, how's you getting on, Teddy? Not bad, Jerry. You? Well, that's good. That's good. You, you, you feel pretty good, eh, bud? Well, I'm pretty good. Uh, well, I can't say good, I suppose, but uh, I, I'm <laughs> on top of the side, and that's the main thing. Huh? No, what I, what I wanted to speak on was, uh, was the gas prices, eh? Now, myself, now, I could be realist now if they want to do 5 $6 a litre, because that's what is going on anyway. And uh, and uh, the, ga- the, the 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 price of gas don't bother me, eh? Cause, cause I'll tell you why. The reason why, you know, cause uh, I, I don't care anyway. And and that's the and that's the simple reason. And uh, uh, what's going on over in Ukraine, right? No, I got to speak on that one. Uh, uh, cause see, Putin is after one thing there, and people don't realize to see it, but I, I do. He's after the minerals is, is in the ground over there. Got the whole top of the ground over there anyway. And all that stuff, eh? Because Putin is, 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 is a, is a high ticket. He's a, he's a full of news. This is a job to deal with him. And, uh, and that's what is on his mind, see? Because uh, uh, Ukraine is a big, uh, is a big place. And a boy, you know that's the world I know that. And uh, uh, that, that's like the indigenous people. The, the, the Indians and the, they, 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 they don't hear no talk about that, you know, and... and uh, don't hear talk about what? The indigenous people, eh? You don't hear talk about, it, like, people talking about it, eh? and, uh, and uh, the, the thing, eh? You know what I mean? Like, well, we talk about it, eh? And uh, I like to know why, you know, because the, the reason why is, you now they, they don't have a thing with them, bury them, three years old, four years old, five years old, this is what happened to him. And with a gunpoint to the mother, going to take the youngster, otherwise shoot you. Now, what other choices you got? You haven't got no other choices, you boy. Uh, My opinion not, on that kind of stuff. Well, I appreciate you sharing your opinion, Jerry. Thanks for the call. Yeah, yeah I think I know it's coming pretty soon. Yeah, okay, then I'll talk to you some other time. All right, Jerry, sounds good. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's keep going here. Let's say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port-au-Port. He's the Shadow Minister of Finance. That's Tony Wickham. Hi, Tony. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. I wanted to uh, call in today and uh, offer a few comments on the failure of government to release the Rothschild report. Uh, you know, this is the same government who yesterday stood up and talked about more transparency and accountability for Mon by telling everyone that the Auditor General is now going to come in and do a review of Mun. And I don't know if it's ironic or disappointing that at the same time they announced that they're refusing to release the details of a $5 million report done with taxpayers' money that will have a significant uh, decision-making process when it comes to what we do with the assets of our province. It's not lost on me the double standard of or the hypocrisy or the irony of transparency at Mon because it's government funded, but government and the people elected officials in the, on the government side are government funded as well, and the government is me and my tax dollars. Look, you know, 
when the minister tries to split, she says, well, you know, it contains some commercial sensitivities, but then goes on to say even the parts of the report that don't contain commercial sensitivities will also be kept close to the vest and not disclosed to the public. So, so in essence, the entire report. The problem with that is, look, if they can give us some... Even just a vague example of what a commercial sensitivity is that is not a private sector operation, it's absolutely government business, government assets, then I'm willing to hear that. But how can we understand, even if they just told us the recommendations, at least that would be a starting point for debate. But now we have absolutely nothing. So that means to me there is no opportunity to debate it on the, house, on the floor of the House of Assembly. Why? Because there's nothing to debate. We don't know, even know what we're talking about. So this is going to go poorly for government and the Liberal Party if they continue down this path. There's got to be a better way. I'd like to see Michael Harvey determine whether or not it should be released as opposed to the minister and the, the cabinet. Absolutely. On that point, it, it's time. Let's get the privacy commissioner involved. Let Michael Harvey review the report and make recommendations about what can and cannot be publicly disclosed. That's why it's an arm's length public body making an independent assessment, not the minister of finance making up the rules as she goes along. You know, clearly she hasn't consulted with the privacy commis- commissioner, which I guess just shows how little regard she has for the public right to know how the assets they own are being handled by this liberal government. It's not the first time that the Rothschilds have been involved in Newfoundland. In the early 1950s, Joey Smallwood went to a boardroom in England and basically negotiated the Crown lands in Labrador to choose a 50,000 square mile concession for Rothschilds to have first dibs. You know, are we now seeing a similar case where the Rothschilds will have first dibs on the purchase of any of our assets? You know, these are the questions that that need to be answered, and the public have a right to know what's in that report. Of course we have a right to know. Um, And whether or not this sets the table for first dibs for Rothschild & Co. or otherwise, it's absolutely a risk, but the bidding process can't be as opaque and as vague or as distant as this particular decision is made by the government. I would hope that there will be an opportunity for a second sober thought. After the budget's been delivered and it's been given a careful evaluation by the government, if they can justify holding back some information that doesn't jade the bidding pool, okay, I can understand that, I guess, but no communication, no detail, no understanding of recommendations is simply not good enough, and they'll be taking the task on this one, I would imagine. Yeah, we intend to take them the task, and I'm sure the public will take them the task. Patty, the Minister of Finance is, is asking the people of Newfoundland and Labrador to just trust her, sight unseen. And let's just, they want us to just take their government's word that they're acting in the best interest of the people of the province. You know, as you had said, this is just not good enough. The people of the province, they own these public assets. They own the Rothschild report. They paid for it. So let's make it public. Let's use Michael Harvey if we need to, to redact those commercially, quote, sensitive pieces that may or may not be in there, because we have no idea. And let's make it public. Let's everyone know what we're talking about and share it with the people of the province. Absolutely right. You're not going to get an argument on that front from me. Uh, anything else you want to say, Tony, about that before we take off to the break? Yeah, the last thing, Patty, is, of course, the, the whole concept of selling off our assets. You know, I believe that Newfoundland shouldn't be known as a province that's up for sale. I think we should be known as a province that's open for business. And let's find a way to do that. Let's do exactly that. Tony, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. So Tony Wakeham, this PC member for Stephenville Port-a-Port and the Shadow Minister of Finance. Okay, so as I mentioned off the top of the program, April 7th, 
is Green Shirt Day. It's in honor of Logan Boulay, the Humboldt Bronco defenseman who succumbed to his injuries after the accident on April the 6th. 29 passengers on the bus, 16 lost their lives, including Logan. But now we're going to celebrate his life and the Logan Boulay effect. When he made the decision to donate his organs because he was mentored by his coach, uh, Rick Suggett, who did exactly that when he passed in the June of 2017, it saved six lives. It inspired somewhere in the neighborhood of 150,000 Canadians to immediately make their wishes known to donate their organs and tissue upon their death. It's sad, but it's building on a tragedy with what is going to help and benefit numerous Canadians. Join us after the break are Bernie and Toby Boulay, Logan's parents. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. As discussed, join us on line number three to talk about Green Shirt Day, which comes up on April the 7th, in honor of the Logan Boulay effect, Ari's parents, Bernie and Toby Boulay. Good morning to you both. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for making time. Uh, Jonathan Hickman and his wife, Allison, helped connect us with you. And we're happy to give some promotion to Green Shirt Day when everyone's being encouraged to wear green and to see more and more Canadians sign up to be organ donors. 90% of Canadians say they would, but only 32% have taken the necessary steps. Just in an effort as an aside to start the conversation, uh, I actually worked with a man named Randy Schlosser, whose father was involved with the leadership group for the Humboldt Broncos. So that was one of the first things that came to mind when I heard the horror story of April the 6th. And to be honest uh, to both of you, I'm not even sure where you'd like to begin or what you'd like to talk about here, because the accident, the tragedy, is still so raw that I don't know if you want to talk about that day at all or on the 7th when Toby passed. Where would you like to start? <laughs> we never, we've never been asked that question before. I guess we'd just like to start. Just uh, first off, thanking you for having us on the show. And Randy Slosser is a name that, that I, we looked at each other. We know that name from our Logan's three years in Humboldt. We just, there's a gentleman in Newfoundland named Brian Snow who passed away last year. And he went out of his way to connect with every boy on the team and Dana, of course, as well. And he connected and he lived in Deer Lake, Deer Lake Newfoundland. He ran Green Shirt Day teas, Green Shirt Day luncheons, went to the home hardware store and ran and gave away squishy organs. And so I guess the first thing I'd like to say is I'd like to thank Brian Snow personally. He's passed away, but he was amazing. He just, to me, he's what Newfoundlanders are all about. He didn't know anybody on the, on the, on the bus. But he just opened his arms and welcomed people so much. It's just awesome. And, you know, I'll give you another example of where this was a coast-to-coast-to-coast -to -coast -to -coast issue. Is there's a, an outfit called Universal Corporate Wear here, Lynn Hindy and her, her team. They were actually putting free Humboldt Bronco logos on a T-shirt if you brought it in, just so we could wear them to work, wear them to school. So the nationwide support and grief was real as far as St. John's. Uh, yes, we certainly have felt that. We felt that we got... Connected, we've been connected with people from clear across our country, and we so greatly appreciate all the support and the kindness. I think that what brought people together was the fact that these, the team was just traveling as they, as many teams do, um, just going to the game, hoping to win a game, hoping to extend their playoff um, run, and then something tragic like this happened, and the crash happened, and we all kind of know that. That how many times have we ever been in a place where you are just going to some place with no thought of what could happen and it happens so i think that it's so many people. Yeah, uh, including me and my athletic pals. And we traveled on the bus, and my children were athletes and were on the bus repeatedly. So it really struck where it hurts for so many Canadians. Um, if it's okay by you, I'd like to ask you about Logan. Tell us about Logan Boulay. Well, Logan, uh, 
he obviously is our son, but he was just he was more than just a hockey player. Hockey was probably his passion. When he was a little guy, he would always say, well, if I don't make the NHL, I'm going to be an archaeologist like Indiana Jones. <laughs> um, he loved adventure. He loved travel. Um, so he was always intrigued. Um, we were fortunate enough to be able to travel to Europe a few times, and he was always intrigued by the ancient stuff, um, by going to see the history when he was young, museums were not something that held his uh, attention, but as he grew older, he could spend hours in a museum reading all the information. He just was trying to intake everything. He was a kind of person who was not worried so much about himself, but about the team and about the other people. He wanted to include people. Um, but he didn't, that's not to say that he wasn't a regular 21 year old who didn't like to go out and have fun and enjoy times with his friends so um he's just kind of a well-rounded person he likes music he likes art um and obviously he loves sport and he just loved to be around people and he made people feel important and he taught took the time to talk to people does green start to oh sorry go ahead sir oh no i just said he was all those things does green start to help deal with loss it helps me a lot because we get to talk about the humble bronco tragedy. We get to talk about the Logan Bowie effect, and we get to talk about our son. And it's not, and it's in that order. The Broncos come first. Logan's a team first player, and then the Logan Bowie effect. But as I said, we get to talk about our son, and we know that there's many, many families out there that don't get to talk about their child, their grandparents, their father, their mother, their sisters, or brothers. Like we get to talk about Logan, so it helps me quite a bit. And. It's hard coming up to the day. It's hard coming up to tomorrow, the day of the crash, April 6th. And then we had 27 hours with Logan, and it's nice to remember all that. Do you stay in touch with the families and the hockey club itself? I read a story this morning. By a young, it's about a young man named Ryan Stresnitsky. He was one of Logan's teammates. He's paralyzed, but he's gone to the University of Calgary, I believe, to get what they call his epidural stimulators uh, reprogrammed in his spine. Do you t- stay in touch with the families and follow these stories? Um, well, actually, I do see Ryan about once every, I'd say, four or five months. My mom lives north of Calgary, so we live in Lethbridge itself, so I drive up to visit my mom, and quite often, well, five or six times, I've phoned the Straczynskis and I've stopped to visit. Other families, we don't see hardly at all. We do our very best to stay in touch, but there's the app, the, the humble Bronco. we're on the family app that we have, thank goodness for technology, and we try to make all the events we can in Humble, the Blue Lakes. It's an eight-hour drive. And we do follow the team, but not as much. I mean, I don't know how much we would have followed the team even if there had not been a crash. And then, and then you know what I mean? Like the game would just, the legs just gone on as normal. I don't know how much we would have followed the team. Let's talk specifically about Green Shirt Day and what you're hoping to achieve. So it's an incredible initiative, and I think it's absolutely real what has become to be known as the Logan Boulet effect. What are you hoping this will mean to Canadians who participate and even just hear conversations like this? Well, our big thing is just to make sure that families have conversations, that people have the conversation that they want to be an organ donor, so that if their family's ever in that situation where they're having to make a decision about whether their loved one should be an organ donor um, or not, they already know because they've had that conversation. So registering is important, but that conversation is even more important because no matter where we are, families can can say no and um, most medical people will not go against families wishes 
about that. So that conversation is so important. We really want people to do that. Wear your green shirt, have a conversation with other people. Um, there's even people who haven't really thought about being an organ donor or just taking that step to register. So that's really important. We are incredibly thankful for all of the support and the events that are happening and how people are wanting to make a difference. We know that every time someone registers, um, it gives hope to people who are waiting for a transplant and who are needing an organ um, because their lives are not easy and their lives are difficult and a transplant can make a difference um, for them for generations. Donation rates have improved over the last 10 years, but we know that some 250 Canadians die while waiting for an organ donation. So the need is real. And once again, just for context and numbers, 90% of Canadians say that they support organ donation, but only 32% have gone the extra mile to register and have this all-important conversation with your family. So a reminder for folks in this province, you have to go through MCP, which is our medical insurance plan provincially, and then have that conversation with your family so that your intentions are known and understood and will be... Honored by your family if and when you pass, or when you pass, pardon me. Uh, anything else you'd like to say on any front this morning while we have you both? Um, we just want people to, to wear green. We want them to have a conversation. We want them to be inspired by Logan um, and to know that they can make a difference. We know that the, the possibilities of someone ever being in a situation where Logan was where you could actually donate is so small, um, and, but we know that it gives hope it's a ray of sunshine that came from a tragedy, and we're just thankful for the support people have given us. I'd just like to thank yourself, Patty, and uh, Alison and her husband for getting us on the show this morning. We just, I've been to Newfoundland before, and our, that's, one of, that's one of our things, our bucket list to go, Bernie and I, and we keep trying, yeah, we're going to go, we're going to go, and then COVID jumps in the way, but we want to go to Newfoundland and just check it out again. I place I've been there for rugby, but... Um, it's just a wonderful place to be, and we're just glad to be, have a chance to talk to you this morning. Well, if you come during the summer, we'll go catch a match. Okay. Yeah, that'd be awesome. That's Finders Grounds. Uh, I really appreciate you making time. The website for more information is greenshirtday.ca. And please do indeed have these conversations. We're green on Thursday, the 7th of this month. We're glad you made time for the program. We're heartbroken for your loss, but thank you very much. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Take good care. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. That's Bernie and Toby Boulay, the parents of the late Logan Boulay, talking about Green Shirt Day and the Logan Boulay effect. When he made his donations, saved some six lives, and about 150,000 people in short order registered to be an organ and tissue donor. Hopefully you'll consider doing the same. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go line number one. Sean, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I'm calling about an issue we're having at Marine Atlantic. Uh, I'm a commercial driver that's going back and forth across the golf every week. And we were informed the other night now, since COVID started, uh, we were uh, put in a room by ourselves. Well, basically, when it first started, we were basically put in jail, to say. We were escorted to our rooms, given a uh, sandwich, a fruit, and a bottle of water, and told we weren't allowed out no more until we got to dock. Now that they, uh, they're starting to open up the province to, to uh, tourism and that, okay, Trig, you guys now, you guys got to go start sharing rooms with other drivers, basically strangers. 
But just think about this, Patty. You go to a hotel, and he says, well, all we got left now is a room with two bunk, two beds in it, and you got to share a room with a total stranger. What do you think of that? Well, it certainly is inconvenient and not ideal, I suppose, with the uptick in bookings that, that Marine Atlantic is saying around the books. I'm not sure what options they would have available. So you're saying that because you were part of the supply chain kept us going for all that time that you should have been given some preference now that the bookings have picked up? Uh, yeah, we basically, like I said, we were put in a bad situation at the beginning of this. Basically, we were uh, weren't allowed to go home to our families when all this started because mm-hmm. we were tra- traveling across the Gulf. Yep. I had to spend the first three weeks in my truck. wasn't allowed to go and visit my family, wife and kids. Uh, when we get to board the boat, uh, when we get to the terminal, I had to stay in my truck. I wasn't allowed in the terminal. Uh, didn't want to get aboard the boat. Like I said, I was given a. Uh, a sandwich, a bottle of water, and a fruit. Go to your room. Basically, when we get docked, we have somebody at the end of the hallway and watching us. You know, you ever watch the movies uh, when they get uh, meal called for jails in the morning? But he would all come out of the room, single file, and walk down in a line six feet apart. That's what we were treated back at the beginning. Now that it's COVID, is they're saying it's coming to an end. Oh, well, you can get in with Joe Blow from Toronto or Texas. Who cares? And I'm in a room. Have you ever been on the boat on these, uh, in these rooms on the ferries? I have not been on the new vessels. I, I have not. The no. last time I was on Marine Atlantic was in 2000. Yep. Well, these rooms are six-by-six six rooms. So just think about that now. Six-by-six six with a, like a two-and-a-half-foot bunk on each side. You're basically two feet apart from another person. So I got to go to sleep there now with a total stranger that and might, be, might be vaccinated, might not be vaccinated. Don't know. And they're not going to ask. Apparently, they're not allowed to ask. Well, and plus, even if they are vaccinated, it doesn't mean that they might not have the virus. So that's, no, you know. No, but, but we've always been told that at least vaccinated, you got some protection. Oh, sure. I'm vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. Fully vaccinated with the booster shot. No. Joe Blow next to me, is he vaccinated? I don't know. And when I go into the, the check-in on the boat, uh, they're not going to ask the guy next to me. They're going to put my name down on the spot. The next guy that comes up, they're going to put the name next to me. They don't go here who he is, who where he's from. They don't care. I care, but they don't. I mean, we not should not be forced. This scenario, I mean, and yet we still got to wear masks when we're walking around the boat on the terminal property. We still got to wear a mask. Yet we're going into a room with a total stranger, and unless I sleep with my mask on, which is going to be very uncomfortable, mm-hmm. I got to take my mask off two feet away from. Him. Where's the six feet? You know, it's a fair concern. I'm not sure what to say to it, uh, other than I, like I offered, I think that you think you should be given preference, given the fact that you've done all these things, made all these sacrifices throughout the pandemic, that you should be given more preferential treatment this go around. I guess that's what we're, what we're saying here, is it, Sean? Yes, pretty much. Yes. And look, I said this. Okay, I'm one of those guys. I'm a little bit lenient. If they come up to me and said, well, you got to share a room, but the guy that you're sharing with is vaccinated. All right, I won't like it, but I'll live with it. But right now, they're not even saying that. You're going in with the room, whoever we put you in with. They're not asking the people if you're vaccinated or not. Yet, two months ago, when they started opening up the restaurant, they had no problem. When we went aboard the boat and the restaurant started to open up, are you vaccinated? Yes. Okay, you can sit down. You're not vaccinated. you got to take it and go back to your room. They had no problem asking then for vaccination cards. But now that we're going into a small room, six by six, with another total stranger maybe, 
they're not going to ask. You know, it's, it's a total different standard because he got a chance to make some money now. Marine Atlantic got a chance to make money and skewed the language after. Uh, no, 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 no. Don't. After truck drivers is what they're saying. I've called. I made three calls to the customer relations office at Marine Atlantic. I've got no response, no nothing. I called Mrs. Hutchings' uh, office. She called back. Hey, oh, well, I don't know what you want us to do. Uh, best thing to do is call customer relations. I've called customer relations. Got no response. You talk to the people on the boat, they kind of shrug their shoulder. Not us. Not us. Who, who's going to help us? Who stands up for us? If we don't stand up for ourselves, who's standing up for us? We how about, can't get help anywhere. How about your association? Trucker Association. Most of us, you got the head over to Trucker Association. It's Day and Ross, Armour, Midland. They're the biggest clout there. They do not send drivers on the boat. They're, all their trailers are drop trailers. Why do they care about this? They don't care. They ship all their trailers, drop trailers. None of their drivers goes on the boat. They're very few. Occasionally, want to go for maintenance, one something different. But 90% of their trucks are drop trailers. They don't care about the room situation. They got nothing to say about it. Well, that's unfortunate. If you have a representative umbrella organization, regardless if it affects their drivers, that's not really their job to look out for well, their company and no one else. But anyway, that's unfortunate. That's the reality. That, that's, the, that, that's reality. That's the way it is. I that's appreciate you making time, Sean. I wish you safe travels out there, and I wish you were a bit more comfortable uh, with your lodgings as you travel across the Gulf. Well, and like I said, I want to put this point across to everybody that's listening right now. If you were told, come up in, on that boat and said, okay, we got four bunks there or two bunk rooms, you can go in the room with a total stranger if you want to. How many people would jump up and say, oh, I'll go, I'll go? Nobody will. Yet we're being not asked to, we're being forced to. We do not have a choice in the matter. If that, if we don't do that, we can go sit down in a chair. And if we do that, by law, we cannot drive the next day for eight hours because we don't have a room booked on our on our paper. And when we get off, if the scales pulls us in, they can charge us and fine us for not having time off because we were not in a room. Understood. We have to have we have to have a room on that boat for at least we drive the next day, right? So, like I said, we're we're between a rock and a hard place, and you know nobody's listening to us. Nobody cares. Yet, back three years ago, two and a half years ago, when the the COVID hit, everybody was praising the truck drivers. But now that they can go and travel freely, truck drivers are on the back burner. Don't care about us anymore. But, but it's not the public who's forcing you to do it. It's Marine Atlantic, so I don't but think no, that. No, Marine Atlantic. But if we can't get no one to back us up. We're trying to get people to stand up for us. That's what we're trying to do. Because Marine Landing never did care about anybody besides... Uh, they're basically a tourism boat. They're the center essential, but when tourism hits, everybody else is on the back burner. They're catering to tourism. And that's all he cares about because that's where he can make their money at. Plain and simple. I'm listening, and I appreciate your yeah, time, right. Sean, and I wish you nothing yeah, but the best. But, but you, you can't say nothing back because... If you do, Marine Atlantic Trenton's uh, VOCM that they're not going to advertise on your uh, radio station anymore. If that was the case, why would I have you on? No, no, you can't stop me from coming on. I said, you sure can't, can't respond, I said. Right? Because we've had this issue before of people calling into Marine Open Line, and we've known Marine Atlantic as Trenton VOCM to do advertising, pull advertising. What? Yep, VOCM, because Marine Atlantic advertises through VOCM. And if you says anything, and that's the same with the government. 
You can't say nothing against them because they're a government organization and they're bullies. Well, it's nonsense. Marine Atlantic is bullies. Yeah, they may be, but, I mean, it's complete and utter nonsense that no one says anything bad about the government here. Well, I didn't say anybody said anything bad about the government. I said, if, if I did. talk and talk bad about the liberals, what can anybody do about me? If you say something bad about Marine Atlantic, Marine Atlantic can pull their advertising uh, funds from VOCM. And I guarantee you that's not $100 a year. That's big money they're advertising for you guys. Because you can hear them on the radio all the time advertising the Marine Atlantic. All the time is on VOCM. If that was my worry, Sean, you wouldn't have been given one split second on this show. Well, maybe not your worries, but I guarantee you it's out there. Because everybody talks. Yeah, but you're talking to me. You're accusing me of yeah. it. And I'm telling you it's not true. No, no, I didn't say you. I didn't say you, Patty. I said VOCM. I said VOCM. You said you won't say anything. And I'm the you. You can't say anything. You okay. So I can say whatever say I like. Say about it. Pardon me? Say something then. Say something that you can, you, you, you kind of feel bad for me, but you've never said anything different. What? You feel bad for me, which everybody feels bad for us. So when I say you think you should get preference because of the way you've handled the pandemic, that's not good enough for you? What do you want me to say? No, no, because you're telling me what I said. That's exactly what I'm saying. Right, what do you think? Do you think I should get preference or not? I don't know why you should be getting preference. Does that mean that I look? I mean, we condemn Marine Atlantic and the cost recovery model and things up and down the line and the lack of communication and the booking system. I mean, you're simply not being accurate with what you're telling me. Well, I think I am because I haven't heard anything different since. Well, I just told you. We talk about the cost recovery model, the lack of communication, the booking system, the headaches, yeah, the deadline. I mean, you talk, yeah. you're saying all that right. You, you do talk about it. So? Nobody's arguing. Then, Nobody's arguing with you. But you're not saying anything bad against Marine Atlantic. You're talking about it. Everybody talks about it. Everybody talks about it. But you're not saying anything bad about it, is what I just said. Nobody from the VOCM can say anything bad about Marine Atlantic, or no employees can say anything bad about Marine Atlantic. It's just, Nobody it's just is, nonsense. Not nonsense. It's complete you nonsense. You go ask all the employees. They're threatened. If they say anything bad about, VC, uh, about Marine Atlantic, they're threatened to be fired. If they disagree with it. I don't work for Marine Atlantic. I didn't see you did. These arguments are just so foolish. It's just really sometimes painful to listen to it, by to be honest uh, with you. I, and well, you, you might be hard to listen to, but I guess the truth hurts. And until I hear something different from anybody, that's the way I believe, because I've so never heard... I've got to get in bed with you to no, to I, prove that I care one iota about your, your issue. No, no, don't so, have to get in bed. So i got to support you, you. Get, and if I don't nope. full-throated support you, then all of a sudden I, I, I'm afraid to say something because they'll pull their advertising. That's what you're telling me, though, right? No. I didn't say that you got to fully support me. No, I didn't. I just say you got to say something to prove me different. That's all I said. Say something to prove different. But I don't all owe I you any approval. What? I don't owe you any approval. You don't owe me any approval. No, you don't. But you no. owe the people, the listeners out there that think this way, and I guarantee you I'm not the only one. I'm the only one that called in right now, but I'm not the only one that thinks that way. Yeah, but that, just because you think that way doesn't make it true. And about VOCM. Just because, so you, you, but but you're hurt by it. What I just said. Well, because it's but nonsense. You it's you're telling me that I have zero integrity and I'm only doing what the masters tell me. When in fact I've never even met anyone from Stingray. Wouldn't be able to pick them out of a lineup. I don't care if Marine Atlantic is mad at me or not. So I'm not really sure. These arguments are just so well, vacuous and empty that they just don't make any sense. Well, maybe nobody not. tells maybe me what to right. say. 
Well, I can tell you, Maybe. as an absolute fact, people tell me Stingray tells me what to say. I've never even talked to anybody from Stingray. I don't know anybody from Stingray. I've never exchanged an email with anybody from Stingray. So it's okay. just nonsense. So you, you don't have a boss that can, uh, gets said by you got to be careful on this or careful on that. I, I haven't even seen the general manager here for months. Yeah, well, that, because you haven't seen him, that don't mean that don't mean much. I haven't seen my boss in. Uh, well, uh, nor have, look, I mean, I'm just telling you. When you guys get on like this, when you guys get on like this, I just know it's foolishness, right? That's all I can well, tell you. Nobody's ever told me what to say. Sean, hold on. What I can tell you, in no uncertain terms, yeah. is the day that someone tells me that I can or cannot say something is the last day on the job for me. Okay, I I, I appreciate that you said that. Well, because it's true. That. Okay, and I'm not arguing that. I got lots of opportunities in this world. If someone starts telling me what to say, they can get someone else to do this gig. Yeah, well, I appreciate that you saying that because that's on the record now that you said that. It's on the record. It's always been on the record. It's always been the case because it's right? true. Now I do have to go because I'm late for the break. Okay, good enough. Take it, it easy. Normal call. All right. Back to you later. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Morning, Brian. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay, Brian. How about you? Very good. Now, you can you can shut me down. I know that we're very short for time. You go right ahead. But anyway, you remind me of when I was a substitute teacher. My God, the stuff you all put up with. That last, that last caller, I said I'd have him sent to the office. <laughs> yeah, I, I can take it. I just find that argument to be pretty intellectually lazy, yeah. boy, to be honest. Anyway, Paddy, I'd like to congratulate you this morning for having that family on, that Brule family from Saskatchewan. You did a really excellent job of uh, interviewing them with compassion and understanding. And I'd like to uh, call you out for that. I was, I, I was in Saskatchewan when that uh, tragedy happened. I taught at a, a high school in Prince Albert. And some of my students knew some of the uh, some of the players who were on that bus and some of the families and what have you. And in fact, a student that I had taught there previously, and I'm not going to mention any names, a student I had previously, his son was on that bus. I still think he's trying to make a recovery. And for that mom and dad to come on this morning, and remember, uh, they were about three hours behind us or two hours behind us in Saskatchewan, so it's quite early there. And for them to come on and talk about organ donation because their son got killed in that car, that uh, bus crash, takes an awful lot of courage. I thought so, I think so too. And someone went on to ask me if there was also was a Newfoundland connection, and there was. There's a kid named Parker Tobin, um, whose parents are from this province. I think they're from maybe Bay Roberts or the surrounding area. Uh, I was happy to have the Boulets on, and uh, I'm glad it went okay because those are tricky. I'm not never really sure how to handle those types of calls because it's in one area it's uh, really good encouraging news and a celebration of life to talk about green shirt day but we're also talking to parents who lost their 21 year old son so it's tricky to say the very least i think Paddy you did a great job i've been a teacher for 31 years in prince albert and facing students who died themselves i think the best way is your way let the parents talk let them express themselves and I love the way they talked about their son. Their son is still alive and live with them. And I'd like to congratulate you. With all the c- calls you get, with the crap that people get on with, you sh- 
show just out to be a very, very good moderator this morning. Congratulations. Thanks for that, Brian, and I appreciate making time for the show this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Take good care. All righty. Bye-bye. Do we have time to sneak one more on, Dave, or will we hold off for another day? Dave, let's just – you can hang up uh, on that particular call. Uh, Anyway, I'm not going to squeeze – well, maybe I will for a minute – Line three, Roz, you're on the air. Unfortunately, Hi, we just have one minute. Go I right ahead. I just wanted to talk about we lost another life in, with an industrial accident, and I would like to send my sincere condolence to the family. Uh, this is why I press for more inspectors to, to investigate companies. Uh, one lo- life lost is too many when it comes to um, accidents at, uh, in a workplace. Um, That's mainly what I needed to say this morning, Patty. I'm sorry, for the last, where did this happen? And I don't know exactly. It happened into an industry and in at somewhere on the west coast. Okay. It was, um, I think, it was um, a recycling plant. I'm not sure I'm aware of that. When did this happen? And a couple of weeks, a week or so ago. Oh my goodness! Maybe it happened while I was on a bit of a mental break with a week away from the show. Yeah, it could have, you know, Patty. But and and I wasn't up to calling earlier. It's just that uh, now that. You know, like where I've been an injured worker myself, it's not every day I can get on call. So, uh, but I just like to let them family, they know who they are, you know, because a lot of injured workers listen to open line because that's their only um, opening sometimes to uh, get help. Well, we're happy that they tune in and we're happy to try to help when and where we can. You've had the last word this morning, Ross. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Patty, for your time and for listening. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, that was indeed the last word to Roz, but we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.